people are going to be writing about us for the rest of our lives probably, and after we're dead. So I intend to either confuse the issue so much they never knew what was going on, or to try and keep shoving out bits and bits. So as whoever is bothered to be looking at it in the future, the people that really know will sort out, you know, they'll know what was going on a bit. There's a lot of books about the Beatles, a lot of theories, and I try not to read them. And whenever I do, the first thing is like, oh, that's wrong. Everywhere you go, trying to find out any little bit of dirt that they can write about you. Beatles is Beatles, are Beatles, Beatles, Beatles. It doesn't matter, you know, what, what people say. You can't live all your life by what they want. Another Kind of Mind. A different kind of Beatles podcast by Another Kind of Mind. Hello and welcome to Through the Acom Lens, a look at the Beatles on film. <laughs> Today I've got Kristen back on the show to talk about Magical Mystery Tour. Yay! I just want to let you know that I am the walrus. It's about time. Mm-hmm. The, the truth, the truth was revealed. The truth is out. <laughs> <laughs> Paul said in the year 2000, you've got to be patient. Everything like that works out well. I think it was a good show. It will have its day, you know. Aww. So today, today is the day. We're going to talk about Magical Mystery Tour. And this will probably be the only podcast you ever need to listen to about Magical Mystery Tour. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, we're pretty <laughs> thorough. We're going to be thorough. <laughs> we had a great time. I hope you enjoy this episode. It's pretty great. <laughs> Talk about hubris. <laughs> the theme of today is hubris. Hubris. <laughs> What's happened with Magical Mystery Tour, I think, is that now, I think it's got a lot of people who like it now. Whereas what happened was it actually came out on, I think it was Boxing Day or Christmas Day, and it was what I call the Bruce Forsyth slot. You know, it should have been, hello viewers, are we happy Christmas? Had your Christmas pud? And it was that slot and it was all, Amen, walrus. You know, it was just not what the the majority of those 20 million viewers expected. So it, it got kind of slammed, I think, from that kind of angle. Um, it was a cheeky film, you know. But uh, I say, you know, the critics then hated it. I think now it's it's maybe it was ahead of its time or something. But it's now it's it's grown. There's a level of acceptance for it now. It really, it's a very 60s film. Captures the spirit. And Bl- Buster Blood Vessel, that fella got his name from it, right? From uh, it was Ivor Cutler's name in that. So it did a lot of stuff, you know. It set a lot of standards in a way, although they hated it at the time. So you know, whilst you don't like critics telling you it's lousy, you have to take them with a pinch of salt too. We had a great nutty Swedish director who was a, a mate of ours at the time, and uh, we used to talk avant-garde films with him, you know, in the in the clubs. We'd sit around the clubs and we'd kind of say, you know, oh, what about that Bergman one, you know, the seventh seal and woo And we'd, we'd, you know, like student kind of mentality, we'd all talk about that. And he'd say, oh yeah, I love that film, it's great, we make a video, you know. So we got down the strawberry, feels pretty wild little video there. What? See, I like that Stones thing, Jean-Luc Godard, that one, one-on-one, one by one. So we've always been interested in that, in the Beatles, and I haven't really lost any interest in it. Um, it's hard to do. You know, it's a, it's a tough job to try and pull a feature film together. It's, it's the biggie. 
And, you know, you're lucky if you get it right. So in this clip, Paul mentions Ingmar Bergman's Seventh Seal mm-hmm. and Jean-Luc Godard's One Plus One. He talks about his love of films, especially experimental films, and basically being a student of film in the mid-60s. We also know from his 1997 biography many years from now that in the mid-60s, particularly in that 66 through 68 era, he screened a few indie films at his house in London. I know that he had a screening of Scorpio Rising by Kenneth Anger and another of Andy Warhol's Empire. The whole thing. We also, I don't imagine <laughs> being invited to Paul's house to watch a movie, and you're like, "Yes, this is awesome!" And he puts on Empire. Well, Andy it's Warhol like was 10 there. Hours long. He screened it for Paul, and I guess he sat there and like was watching Paul watch it. Oh, good lord. <laughs> I'm surprised he didn't make a movie of Paul watching Empire. <laughs> that would have been amazing. I really, really doubt it was the entire thing. Yeah. Like that was that was like a play Seven. it in the background during yes, a party sure. kind of movie. But Absolutely. You know, that's probably what they did. I think you and I have probably both been to those kind of parties. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Very pretentious. <laughs> Exactly. Very pretentious. Yeah, that's the that's the essence of Andy Warhol. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in the Michael Braun book, Love Me Do from 1964, Paul mentions The Trial, the Orson oh, Welles nice. movie, and Eight and a Half. So we have a pretty good sense of Paul's movie background in 1967 going into the making of Magical Mystery Tour. He's mentioned Bergman, Godard, Fellini, Truffaut, or he mentions him in the DVD commentary. Um, Orson Welles, Kenneth Anger, Andy Warhol, and and also Dick Lester in British comedy, such as More Common Wise. He mentions both of those in the DVD commentary as well. And we know that Paul had been making his own short films for a while uh, by the time that he conceived of the Magical Mystery Tour project. So he's made a, he's made enough, you know, short films and he knew enough uh, basic filmmaking, like he knew how to rewind the film and expose it again. And so he did, you know, he liked making double exposures and for the stuff that was becoming more popular in the 60s, artsy little tricks. Well, you know, what I think is interesting about Paul's influences uh, that you mentioned, like these these great European art cinema directors like Bergman and Fellini and then you've got the new wave and uh, directors the experimental and even the American director that you mentioned Orson Welles isn't like run-of-the-mill American director like he's the artsy one Uh, you Mm -hmm. know Orson Welles right Uh, but what I think is really interesting is that in the 60s that was a pretty standard um mix there for people who are really into film culture, like uh, mm. New Wave and uh, European art cinema directors. Like, I'm surprised he doesn't throw Kurosawa in there because that's always <laughs> yeah, right. kind of in the mix, right? Um, or Bunuel. But like those 
that group of directors, the, the art cinema directors from like the 1950s and then the new wave, the French, specifically the French new wave directors from the 50s and 60s mm-hmm. um, were so a part of film culture uh, at the time um, in the 1960s, like all of the, the basically the 20 somethings, uh, you know, the people Paul's age. Uh, we're definitely yeah. really getting into film culture at this time. Uh, you know, you had cine clubs, uh, like movie clubs popping up all over the world. They were really, really uh, important in France. But in England, you they would have been um, like really popular where people would get together and definitely like college campuses in the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. College age um, students would get together and they would... Uh, watch the latest, or not even the latest, but they would watch uh, The yeah, Seventh right. Seal, or they would watch, uh, you know, whatever, uh, you know, Rashomon or whatever, and then they would discuss it, and it would be, um, you know, sort of this this thing where, it, like in France, these cine clubs were supported by the government. I mean, it was a sanctioned yeah, thing. They still uh, are. Right, right. And so, you know, it's it was really, really popular. And then experimental films were thrown into the mix too. And so you had these kind of pop-up theaters or uh, movie clubs or, uh, you know, sort of small town independent theater, not small town, but independent theaters and college campuses. And so you had this real film culture uh, in the post-war era and really coalescing in the 1960s with college age people. And Paul, even Mm -hmm. though he's not a college student, he's in that kind of spot that sweet yep. spot age-wise so it absolutely makes sense that he's doing this uh and it's not even like super unique or unusual like this is something that a lot of uh sort of 20 something especially 20 something artists and intellectuals were absolutely doing um and you know that he the fact that he's showing Kenneth Anger and Andy Warhol like he's definitely showing um the cutting edge um sort of uh, pop culture uh, experimental filmmakers, um, which is pretty cool. You know, he's not showing like Stan Brakhage or Maya Darren. Like maybe he is, but he's not showing the ones (laughs) that are maybe a little bit more challenging. He's showing the ones that are a little bit more accessible, uh, which is great though. Like those are, they're fantastic. Like Kenneth Anger is, is amazing. And the fact that he's showing Scorpio Rising is amazing um and (laughs) it's a fantastic film but anyway I think that he's just so a part of that moment that late 60s uh sort of film culture experimental film culture moment um and that moment you know it's like just starting to seep into Hollywood at this time and and you know this sort of counterculture interest in experimental and new wave and art house filmmaking is about to completely change Hollywood and give us new Hollywood. And so, um, you know, he's he's right sort of on track at this time as far as uh, youth film culture, which I think is really cool. When he was speaking at the beginning of the episode, uh, that's a clip from 1986. And when he was saying like, oh, well, maybe it was ahead of its time. I, I mean, I, I disagree, but I agree mm-hmm. in that. I agree in that. It was somewhat out of its time to put that on the BBC yes. on Christmas. <laughs> like, it is. They were definitely not ready for that. It's ahead of its time for BBC One 
Absolutely. Yes. And it came, yes. uh, wasn't it, didn't it air like right after the Petula Clark Christmas special? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah, I love that. But yeah, <laughs> like, it, for sure. But, for, you know, uh, Paul's grandparents' age who are sitting at home on Boxing Day watching BBC <laughs> yeah, One, right, right, right. they're like, what the hell is this? But, you know, for the youth audiences who are going to, you know, art house theaters, it's, it's completely of its time. Exactly. Right. Yep. So it's not ahead of its time. It was just out of place. Like it was in the exactly. wrong place. Exactly. Right time, exactly. wrong place. Yeah. Right. The film itself is not ahead of its time at all. Uh, yeah. And that's the way it is with the kind of a number of things about the Beatles is mm-hmm. that because obviously they're not the only thing happening in popular culture in the sixties, you know, right. like they didn't invent the sixties. Right. Um, but they're taking, you know, influences from all over popular culture mm-hmm. and they're the most popular band in the world. Like all the grandparents do know them. Yeah. Which is different than, say, Pink Floyd, you know? Like, your grandmother doesn't know who Pink Floyd is. Right, right. But they have heard of the Beatles. Yeah, right. And they watch Ed Sullivan. (laughs) So, you know, like, from the start, they knew who the Beatles were. As far as it being, again, being ahead of its time, like, it was right on trend as far as a lot of, like, there's a lot of experimental techniques in the film. There's a lot of new wave techniques um, that were just, like, right on trend with what was going on. Um, like, it reminded me a lot, in a lot of ways, of a film from 1966, so a film that had already come out and had already uh, made a wave, uh, a movie called Daisies. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's a Czech film by Vera, and I always butcher her name. It's like Hitilova. I can never say that. Vera Hitilova, uh, called Daisies. And it's mm-hmm. such a great movie. It's uh, this weird sort nice. of anarchic, absurdist, (laughs) dark comedy um, about these two women uh, living in Czechoslovakia. And this is during, you know, the the Iron Curtain period. This is during, you know, under communism. Uh, And these two women uh, have decided that since the world is bad, uh, they're going to be bad. And so they are just going out and like – just breaking all the rules. They're they're basically going out and um, taking advantage of men. They're getting men to take them out. And then they're just like yes. using the men. And there are all of these scenes where they're at restaurants and they're eating and they're just like chowing down. And it's, they're just, it's, the movie is amazing and you must watch it because it's so good. But this scene, especially the scene in the restaurant reminded me of that a lot. And then there's another, uh, bit where there's like a superimposition of people eating and that kind of reminded me of daisies and then just sort of mm. the absurdism of the film and the surrealism um definitely reminded me of daisies quite a lot and that movie came out a year before uh, magical mystery tour and was a big uh international hit like it, it was a sort of a a very nice. popular film and so i definitely think that that could have been an influence you know i don't we don't have any evidence that they saw it but like, yeah. there's a lot of daisies in Magical it, Mystery Tour. Yeah, very, very, very likely could have. Yeah. I now have it in my queue. It's definitely next on my list. I'm very excited to see that. Thank you for Yeah, it's wild. It is bringing a it to my attention. absolutely wild film, but it's wonderful. Yeah, so I definitely do think it's like, it, I mean, and even Paul says that in the clip also. He said it's a very 60s film, you know. Oh, yeah. I, I definitely think it has the spirit of 1967 in it yeah. for sure. Yeah. Like, obviously, it in, it influenced other, like Monty Python, 
which doesn't yeah. premiere until a couple years after Magical Mystery Tour, but like those are they are cut from the same cloth for, for sure. sure. And then I was reading that the Monty Python guys actually wanted to use Magical Mystery Tour. They wanted to screen that before like I think Life of Brian, I think, or one of their Aww. 70s movies. Like they wanted to screen them together as like a double feature. And I, I don't know if that ever happened. I think they got the clearance from the Beatles and then I don't know if that ever happened. But like for sure, Monty Python was influenced by stuff like Magical Mystery Tour. Was the film what you expected? I was expecting it to be a little bit more political, I think. And it and I don't know why I thought this. I, I I guess just because late 60s, I thought there'd be a little bit more political commentary. Yeah, well, that was, that was one of the main areas where it diverges from Weekend is that, you know, Weekend yeah. is like comically, <laughs> you know, overly political, like, like blatantly, right? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> Magical Mystery Tour is not political at all. It's a fun romp. Like there's one moment at the beginning, and maybe this is why I thought it would be political when I was watching it, because I went in just cold. I had never seen it before. Yeah. Um, I hadn't read it. Like I knew that it existed as a movie and I knew that, and I'm familiar with the album and I, that's literally all I knew about it. So at the very beginning, everybody's kind of, there's a scene where a bunch of people are rushing and they, there's a British flag on the ground that they all run over and then somebody picks it up and runs with it. And I thought, oh, okay. So we're going to have some yeah. <laughs> trenchant political commentary. And then that's yeah. it. And then they're like. And they did not. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> and then Paul it's is true. standing on a hill. Victor Spinetti's oh. weird drill sergeant. It's like it's set up to where you're, you're like, this is definitely going to end in the English army is going to be humiliated in some way or thwarted right, or, yeah. you know, it, something's going to happen and it, it just doesn't. You think it's going to be like a Dr. Strangelove kind of thing, which I know we'll, we're going to talk yeah. about in a bit, but you <laughs> right, think it's right. going to be more of, yeah, like an indictment of the military or something or mm -hmm. something. It's 1967. That was very surprising because that is never a really searing indictment of, you know, the military or the, you know, war machine or anything. It's just yeah, sort of exactly. like, this is a fun setting to, to set, a, you know, to put a little sketch that's funny. Yeah. Or, you know, I don't know. It was funny, though. He was really good at it. But, oh, um, Victor Spinetti? Yes. He's phenomenal. I, he's, I love him so much. I was so excited when he showed up. I was like, oh, my God, it's the director for Fortnite's Night. I was really excited. And the, and the like, the fiberglass cow. Like, <laughs> it's they, you know, it's just funny. Yeah. It's a prop comedy. Like, yeah. <laughs> so um, let's talk for a minute about the reviews, about the bad reviews that this got and whether or not they were deserved. Mm -hmm. I actually had kind of a hard time finding any original reviews <laughs> of oh, this movie. The best that I could find was an article from The Guardian that quoted a, a few different reviews. Uh, for example, the headline in the mirror was Beatles Mystery Tour Baffles Viewers. <laughs> and it said that by the thousands, viewers protested to the BBC. Really? So we know that it, it was not a viewer favorite. Um, the Express called it tasteless nonsense and blatant rubbish. Hmm. 
Um, In the States, NBC canceled an agreement to show the film on its broadcast, leaving a print to be passed around U.S. universities. It would not be shown again in Britain for over a decade. Only The Guardian offered any respite, praising an inspired free-willing achievement, a kind of fantasy morality play about the grossness, warmth, and stupidity of the Beatles audience. That was the only good review. There was one guy at The Guardian who liked it, and evidently everybody else completely trashed it. Hmm. I mean, nonsense and rubbish, that was pretty hostile. Yeah, and, well, it's funny because nonsense isn't necessarily a bad thing, right? Just yeah. is, uh, and it is nonsense, like in a very literal sense, it's it's <laughs> yeah. nonsense. But that's not, <laughs> but like that's their, that was their strategy, basically, you know, they're yeah, yeah. basing sequences on, you know, John's dreams or, I mean, there's like, let's look up in the sky at these four wizards, like it is nonsense. Um, but of course, you know, they mean it uh negatively. They mean they mean that pejoratively. But I mean, look at who was in the press then. You know, the press was not young yeah. counterculture types. The, you know, who was writing the film or the television reviews in the mirror or the Daily Mail or whatever. Like it it's the generation that was sitting at home confused, I think, by Magical Mystery Tour and calling to the BBC to complain about it. I would think. Yeah. I guess my question is like, why didn't anybody push back on it? But I guess there definitely was like some underground independent press and stuff like that. But I, I suppose we wouldn't know about it if they ran a good review of Magical Mystery Tour. I mean, I guess maybe it was the one guy at The Guardian. Yeah. Like, so what is the general, like, the general press reaction to the Beatles? In 1967, not their movies, but just to them in general. There was a bad review in the New York Times about Sgt. Pepper, Mm -hmm. like the first press copy that came out that Paul loves to quote because it was like the the first and last ever bad review of Sgt. Pepper. (laughs) Like this guy didn't like it and he was like immediately shouted down for the rest (laughs) of history. But Sgt. Pepper was a big success. But a critical success? Yes. Other than that one review, Magical Mystery Tour is very, like, infamously the first Beatles flop. Was the album a flop? or Criti- Critical flop. No. The okay. album was a success. And All was the it, Beatles albums were successful. Was, it was well-reviewed as an album? Yes. Although it wasn't a long play, it was a extended play because it wasn't a full album right was it released after the um the tv show after the magical the movie i think it was like released in conjunction with okay interesting so yeah Yeah. it always kind of like blows my mind to think about how quickly the beatles just blew up and like how short their run really is when you look at like yeah. You know, from the whole British invasion to breaking up. What a short period of time that is and just like how much happened in that short period of time. So I always think that it's much longer. But what was like 64 that they first came to the US and that they first like really blew up, was it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So this is only like 3 years. So I'm cuz what I'm getting at is like I'm wondering how much the press was just kind of sick of them. Like all, yeah, you right. know what I mean? Like all Beatles yeah. all the time. And so For maybe sure. there was a little bit of just 
you know. Thank God we have something to criticize them about. Yeah. yeah I think it was, there was a lot of that. I think it was like 50% that, you know. Yeah, <laughs> like, like just like finally we can, you know, slam on them. You know, just like happy to see these this band that can do no wrong, happy to see them fail maybe. Oh, for sure. Okay. And then, of course, the TV critics weren't the ones who were necessarily following the Beatles as a band. A newspaper would have had, like, their music critic, their film critics, their TV critics. And I'm assuming that whoever the TV critics were who were reviewing this BBC broadcast were not the same people who would have reviewed A Hard Day's Night or who would have reviewed Mm. any of the albums these are not people who would have been following this band for years and would have really had an appreciation for, you know, the, the, the music necessarily. Yeah. They're also not necessarily the people who are following like the cutting edge of, you know, independent film or whatever. No, no (laughs) television critics. (laughs) No TV critics. I can say that with some (laughs) <laughs> certainty like and again i don't know i don't know a ton about what was going on on even you know on british tv in the 1960s and i'm sure that there was some cutting edge but again this is pre monty python i mean benny hill was on already in the 60s but i don't know what that looked like mm-hmm. in in the late 1960s yeah so like there this is right at the cusp right of all of these like really yeah. really um groundbreaking variety shows that are about to take over the airwaves. And so the reviewers are, I I don't know, I would imagine that they're just used to a little bit more tame <laughs> content on the BBC in 1967. But it's, but it, I don't know though. It's not overtly political. It's, right. I mean, it's not, it's not subtextually political mm-hmm. right it's not political yeah it, there's nothing offensive in it right um and and the the reviews are kind of aggressive like tasteless nonsense and blatant rubbish like it does sound like they're mad at the Beatles for you know I mean I can understand if they want to spank the counterculture for getting out of line or whatever but like this seems like a really weird place to take it out on. But so content-wise, it's not offensive, right? Because right. which we talked about. But stylistically, it flies in the face of everything that's been established yes. up to this point. And I think that's where uh, you know, sort of a more conservative critic could definitely take offense. Like that was the whole point of the new wave was to break with tradition. And to break all the rules and right. to throw in jump cuts and to throw in sort of, you know, random flashbacks and really these ambiguous Absolutely. narratives and like all of this crap. Like that's the whole point of new cinemas in the 1960s, uh, that this is really a part of that trend. And so right. I can definitely see critics um, who are just like, what is this absolute garbage that these young people are making this is not how the bbc conducts itself well, and you know I, I i agree so it's insane to me that the beatles history and the beatles narratives or whatever keep that up and continue to like dog on this film for being amateurish or being yeah. you know, unconventional or whatever that's, that's what's the weird entire, the entire ethos of the beatles like why would you take the side of the system 
Yeah. It's mind-boggling to me. Yeah. This should be in the narrative of the Beatles. This should be an an important milestone in terms of, like, them having a creative vision and taking it into their own hands and, like, going out on a limb and stuff like that. And it's never portrayed that way. How is it portrayed? It's portrayed as, like, a sucky, shitty film (laughs) that was Paul's dumb idea. (laughs) So it's Seriously. still it's still basically whatever hot take those yes. critics in 1967 Abs- had. That's still kind of what people Absolutely think about the movie. Absolutely, Kristen. Today. Absolutely, Kristen. That's interesting. This movie has no defenders. That's there are no champions of this film other than Paul McCartney. I mean, <laughs> and, and John Lennon to a lesser, aw. maybe to a slightly softer extent. I mean, look. It's not a brilliant film by any stretch of the imagination. I agree. And I think partly because it doesn't really have sort of this cohesive point of view. Like they don't, they're not trying to say anything. And that really is where this movie breaks away from a lot of the new cinemas, which are absolutely trying right. to say something. This is just, yes. these four guys are like, let's go out and have some fun and we're going to make a movie and it's going to be awesome. Um, but there's, something good in that like there's it's it's really a joyful film it's a lot of fun to watch and its weirdness is is endearing in a way that you know I can understand why it would have been off-putting at the time but certainly you know now that that all of these kind of rule-breaking stylistic techniques that they're using in this film, now that those are more mainstream and you can see them, you know, certainly every time you turn on MTV, but even when you just go to the movies, you're going to see rule-breaking that they use here, all the sort of muddied, ambiguous narratives and the, you know, sort of weird cross-cutting that they put in. But so um, now that we're used to that, I'm surprised that people aren't reevaluating this film and like it yeah. sounds like they're just sort of wedded to this narrative that set, was set in motion back in 1967 and nobody's kind of stepped of back course. and reevaluated it. That's exactly what it is. Well, the I mean, the Beatles world isn't full of a lot of great thinkers. I hate to <laughs> say that on a Beatles podcast. <laughs> well, your <laughs> listeners are all brilliant. I will Obviously, say that. Obviously, <laughs> that's why they've that's why they've tuned in. If they've gotten this far. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. I don't want to sit and complain about no, the books, it. No, but, but um, it does seem well, I mean, I think this is true with anything, right? With any anything that makes a splash and generates a lot of attention and a lot of press, um, it's hard to then step away from it and reevaluate it. Because it's hard to sort of distance yourself from what you Right know about it or sort of these preconceived notions that you have about it. And so, like, I get that. That makes sense. Well, the the part that infuriates me is um, when people characterize it as hubris, because I think it's completely the opposite of that. I think it's made in the experimental, independent DIY spirit, which is, you know, the willingness to be a student, to take risks, to do something you're not an expert in, um, which is the opposite of fucking hubris. Yeah. Like, that's being creatively bold and ambitious. And, uh, you know, it's not as if the Beatles are 
professionally, classically trained musicians who come with this great pedigree into music. So I don't understand where this idea comes from, that they have to be like professional studio executives to make a film. And how dare they be, particularly Paul, like how dare Paul be so full of himself and to make this vanity project and to think he could direct a movie. He's doing like a piece of art. Yeah. (laughs) He's an artist. What are you talking about? Yeah, that really is interesting that it would be characterized as like some act of hubris. I'm trying to think of like what would happen if something similar happened today. And I I mean, there's not really a band that's the equivalent of the Beatles, but so I don't know who you could sub in their place. But, you know, if some band, if some musical act decided to... See, I don't I know. Think everybody makes their own shit nowadays, so it's not. But it's, it's often, but it's era. often seen as hubris. Like it is often seen as kind of this self-centered act. Oh, look, another you know actor is directing a film. Um, and but that's gone away. A lot of that's yeah, gone away, though. Yes, I, I yeah, I guess it has. And you know, and there are so many that have been really successful. So yeah. I guess you know you've got. Your Jordan Peels and your Greta Gerwig's, yeah, and yeah. you know Olivia Wilde, and you've got like actors who you know with their first projects like really make a big splash and are really great, and so yeah, maybe that is kind of going away. Yeah, and they're often the best because they've got a really good background. I think, uh, and yeah. also like people people talk about m- movie making like. Like it's heart surgery or something. It's like, oh, he doesn't know what he's doing. It's like, what do you mean he doesn't know what he's doing? It's directing a movie. It's a fucking piece of art. Calm down. Like, Right. Clearly they had like professionals um, taking care of the things that they couldn't do. And I think you're right. Like as long as you surround yourself with people who are competent and and know what they're doing, yeah, directing the film is kind of the easiest part of it in some ways. It's a a, a first-time production here. Anyways, I'm going to try to argue that this is a fantastic film that succeeds on every level. Right. Um, It definitely is weak in a lot of areas, but I also think it's brave and adventurous and artistic and there are great things about it. And I, and I absolutely definitely do not get the impulse to, shit on it or call it a failure. I mean, if anything, it's the failure of finding the right audience for it or, you know, finding somebody to shape it up a little bit or maybe they could have taken what they had shot and then shot some other stuff later and maybe put it together to make something more interesting. I mean, I do kind of agree that if – because it was definitely just done on the fly and it was improv and, you know, just kind of like, well, let's just go out and shoot some stuff and see what happens, which is fine. And a lot of that pays off. Um, but if they had taken a, a bit more time to structure things out, they might have had something yeah. a little bit better. I definitely agree with that, too. And then also, like, maybe had some conversations about what they really wanted to say with the movie and, like, yeah. what the, you know, the point of it and stuff like that. It was spontaneous. Yeah. There were some good ideas that that weren't super fleshed out. Um, But I think we should appreciate it for that. I don't don't really know what we gain by just like 
saying, oh, it was too terrible and it was dumb and it was unwatchable. Like, yeah. In terms of it being so horrible that 20 million viewers called to complain to the BBC <laughs> or whatever, you know, if if they had aired Weekend on Boxing Day, <laughs> they would have gotten 20 million phone calls about what a shit show that was. Like, oh, they would have gotten more than 20 weekend, million. <laughs> right? <laughs> except, for the, except for the critics – who would have written, oh, this is, you know, brilliant. I mean, I like Weekend, but I'm not saying that it's trash. <laughs> I'm just saying that, like, most people would think it's trash. Like, it for the mainstream general audience. It's not BBC One Boxing Day after the it, Petula Clark exactly. Christmas special. <laughs> Absolutely viewing. not. The mums and dads sitting at home eating leftovers would not say, oh, this is artsy, but it went over my head. They'd be like, what is this? God, this is absolute filth. Well, they would have turned not a it real off. Film. Yeah, they yeah, would have turned exactly. it off. What? So, do you know what was the viewership for Magical Mystery Tour? If Twenty million people called in. How many people watched? <laughs> called in. <laughs> <laughs> twenty <laughs> million phone calls. I don't know. Uh, Paul said in that clip, he said the twenty million people watching, and I don't know. If oh, he just twenty million that people. Right. Ass. What was the? Yeah. So, like, what was the number of phone phone calls? I have no clue. Okay. I have no clue. 20 million people called, yes. The entire <laughs> population of Great Britain. No, so, yeah, like, who knows how many people called in um, and what percentage that was. And I think, you know, in the days, like, if it were to air now instead of in 1967, you know, people would just be going on message boards and talking shit about it. Like, there's always going to yeah. be yeah. cranks. And there's always going to be somebody's grandma calling in to complain about <laughs> this trash on TV and why can't we have Lawrence Welk or whatever the British equivalent of Lawrence Welk was. So, like, and I now like it would just, if it would just was boring, you would just change the channel and watch something else. I think the point is that in 1967, you don't have other choices. <laughs> it's like, that's what right. you're watching. Yeah, you could switch to BBC too. So, like, there's <laughs> yeah, that. That's and, kind of it. And also, like, if you're stuffed full of, you know, pudding or whatever, pudding. you're not getting up off the couch. You're just <laughs> well, and how, who knows how many of these people were watching with their kids who were, like, super into it. But the parents exactly. were like, what is this garbage? I don't understand this and it makes me angry. Um, which, you know, I, <laughs> like, I think that really is it. Like, there's nothing objectionable in the content, but I do think in the style of it. If this movie had come out on the BBC three years later, like, you know, even just a few years right. later after Monty Python, because I really think Monty Python sure. is cut from the same cloth. And once that's on the air and sort of mainstream and people are used to that, then it would be like, oh, this is just, you know, like those those funny boys who wear dresses. Like they wouldn't have even thought about it. Yeah. So, you know, I think just the fact that this comes out on BBC One, in black and white of all things, which is ridiculous, before there's really anything comparable. And again, maybe there was. Like, you know, I don't know what was really right, right, going right. on. I Again, I know Benny Hill had already been on, and that was sort of silly sketch comedy, but I don't think it was quite as transgressive as... Uh, Magical Mystery Tour or Monty Python or Laugh-In or, you know, a lot of those other things. And certainly not as transgressive as, uh, you know, French New Wave filmmaking or other new cinemas um, or Weekend or Daisies or, you know, other of these yeah. like really, really um, groundbreaking works. Um, so, yeah, I think 
people were probably expecting to turn on the TV and watch these these nice um, boys singing some of their songs uh, like they did on Ed Sullivan or something and, and you know, yeah. not expecting this kind of uh, mayhem. I think we've really hit upon uh, the main problem. I think so. I think so. With this movie. All of that aside, like just as a sort of easy breezy musical film, what do you think of it? I think it's fun. Like it's lightweight. It's just sort of young and joyful and exuberant. And, you know, it's just it's just a like a happy little movie. You can tell that they're having a great time. Like, let's just hop onto the bus. And there's a lot of this stuff that's sort of irreverent and cheeky in a fun way. Mm. You know, there's sort of their use of the narrator. It's John, right? Who's narrating? Yeah. 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 So their use of the narrator <laughs> um, and some of their moments where they're, you know, sort of looking into the camera um, and kind of winking at the audience. And then, you know, just the narrator to be sort of like educational films, like <laughs> here's Richard Starkey and his Aunt Jessica. <laughs> And, you know, kind of evoking either, you know, not even documentary, not even that highbrow, but it really kind of reminded me of um, industrial films. Like, we're, we're going yeah, to yeah. tell yeah. you, like an yeah. advertising film. Traveling on a mystery tour is a great way to see the country. It's quirky. It's quirky. Yeah. And it's just fun. I mean, I really enjoyed watching it. Um, yeah. And, you know, it, it has flaws. Absolutely. Like, it definitely could have stood to have sort of a more cohesive point of view because it, it mm -hmm. is just sort of a loose collection of stuff and then it ends and it's kind of like, yeah. well, that happened. I'm not saying it needs like a really uh, uh, strong yeah, narrative, yeah. but it needs it. And I'm not sure why they made it other than to have fun, but <laughs> yeah. watching them having fun is fun, you know, and I mean, I would I watch the an entire movie about Richard Starkey and his aunt Jessica, like because the two of them were hilarious together, and I loved, um, you know, some of the the characters and some of the situations. I loved Paul as the fool on the hill. Uh, the I am the walrus number is just yeah. really delightful and weird, and and the wizards, like I don't know what is happening there, but it's weird. <laughs> Like John, do you notice how John is doing a Groucho Marx in that? Oh yeah, I can see that. Yeah, you know, he's that totally trying to kind of channel Groucho Marx. I'm not sure what kind of a weird accent Paul is doing in it, but it's cute and um, <laughs> I don't know. I enjoyed that. Uh, so yeah, I could watch a whole movie of just this scene when John is on the bus and he has that little girl on his lap. Um, so there's yeah, it's I think it's charming and it's fun and it really captures this moment in time. But I also think that it's very lightweight and and flawed in a lot of ways. Yeah, I you know it's got four really great songs in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> that sounds fucked up. It sounds like it has four songs, <laughs> and then there's Flying and Magical Mystery Tour, which is I'm not saying they're bad, but um, it's got four amazing songs, and then it's got a decent instrumental and it's got of course magical mystery tour which i think is fantastic opening and closing number actually i think it yeah. it opens and closes the film really really good and it's a wonderful theme song and it's got a lot of great energy and it sounds good and it's fun to listen to that's a lot of good things going for a song i mean i, 
Other than that, though, it's maybe not like a great song in and of itself because sure. it definitely serves a purpose. It's a theme song. Um, but the four songs featured in the film, Fool on the Hill, Blue Jay Way, I Am the Walrus, and Your Mother Should Know, I think are all really, really good, really strong Beatles songs. Yeah. I liked all four of those numbers as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're obviously kind of the meat of the film, <laughs> the mm-hmm. musical numbers, which is kind of weird because this film never strikes me as a musical, as opposed to like A Hard Day's Night, for example. Which yeah. Is, a Hard Day's Night is way more plot heavy. Right. <laughs> right. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Yet it's still more of a musical than Magical Mystery Tour is. Magical Mystery Tour is still just like a dreamy, like art film with four musical numbers in it. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, I agree with all of that. Okay, before we talk about the film itself, we're going to switch gears for a moment. And rather than just react to the film, we wanted to broaden the conversation a bit to include two contemporaneous filmmakers. The first conversation is to show the after effects and influence of Magical Mystery Tour and how its imagery subsequently seeped into other parts of our popular culture. And in the second discussion, We've selected a film from almost precisely the same moment in time as Magical Mystery Tour to help get a sense of where the film world, or at least the progressive film world, was in 1967 and how Magical Mystery Tour fits beside a film that is essentially strong in all the areas where Magical Mystery Tour is weak, but also maybe lacks Magical Mystery Tour's levity and charm. Okay, let's talk a little about Stanley Kubrick. Yes, let's talk about Stanley Kubrick. (laughs) Okay. Um, The Shining is probably one of the most overanalyzed films of our modern era. (laughs) Lord knows I love to overanalyze it, and I know uh, Kristen does as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I've seen every stupid film on it i've read all the conspiracy theories Mm -hmm. i love theories about the shining you know from the completely outlandish wacky ones to the more traditional ones like all of them i love i love fringe theories and there Mm. are a lot about kubrick did you know that kubrick was the one who staged the moon landing that is a fact that is a fact Well, if anybody would be the one, it would well, be him. I mean, it was right at the time of 2001. So obviously, like, he... Oh, sh- oh sure. It's a tie-in. Mm, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was part of the marketing for 2001. Right. Yeah. It's trying to drive audiences. That totally makes sense. Oh, yeah. Well, you're not going to get, you know... What are they going to get, like, Arthur Penn? No, he's done. <laughs> I don't know why I thought of him. <laughs> He's a very good Arthur, director. Yeah. <laughs> Arthur Penn turned it down. Arthur, yeah. He's like, I no, no. I I've already faked Kennedy's assassination. I'm done with that. I'm moving on to another 
point in my career. <laughs> With that said, <laughs> I do feel like um, there are some pretty obvious references to Magical Mystery Tour in The Shining that, oddly, I never really heard anybody talk about for a film that is so <laughs> aggressively overanalyzed. Right. I never really see anything about uh, the, the Magical Mystery Tour references in The Shining. Huh. But there are several that we thought were fairly obvious. The first one is the fellatio performing <laughs> assless furry <laughs> in the hotel room. Um, it's a, it's slightly contentious what animal he is, which is why I call him a furry. Right. Um, because I always thought he was like a dog. Yeah, but I usually hear bear. But I, I'm with you on this. I, I think it looks like a dog or even like a yeah. beaver. I don't even know yeah, what yeah, it's meant exactly. to be. But you, I always hear it referred to as a bear. Yes. And then we we saw a video that made a pretty good case that it's a bear. Because mm-hmm. um, it does have bear ears. I mean, the thing is, it has sharp teeth and blue eyeshadow, which doesn't really tip you off to what animal this is. Um, they weren't really going you, for, you know, realism, I guess. The guy, they, the guy getting were not. blown by the furry wasn't like... Okay, wait a second. It's really important that I know <laughs> what species is this creature. Like, if you're a bear, that's okay. But if you're a dog, yeah, that's, uh, that's no, weird. That's just sick. Yeah, no, yeah. no, no, no. I think the, the ass being cut out is just a reference to sex. It's yeah. go beyond that, right? <laughs> um, and like I said, we, we watched a video that made a, a really good case for the teddy bear like there are a couple other references to teddy bear there's mm-hmm. at least one like danny has a pillow that's in the shape of a teddy bear right that is the, the same color and has the same ears yeah so th- that is presumably deliberate right the costume was made to match the um match the right. pillow right. and then there's a whole theory about how um the bear represents uh, the sexual assault on danny by his father right and, you know um we can put that in the show notes if you're interested. <laughs> if you really want to go down that rabbit hole, yes. some people might not. But um, but again, the fact that the bear is a little ambiguous, like we don't 100% know that it is a bear, mm-hmm. is also, I think, a, a reference to Magical Mystery Tour because those costumes are – like you'd be hard-pressed to say what exactly those fucking costumes are other than the walrus – yeah. Like the walrus is definitely walrus, but otherwise, what the hell are the other animals? Yeah. I, I looked at them for a long time and I cannot t- like, like, it seems like there's a bunny. Oh, okay. Cause there's bunny ears. Yeah. I feel like one has got to be a bunny. Okay. I thought there was a chipmunk somewhere. And then maybe? Ringo kind of has like a beak. <laughs> like I thought he was maybe supposed to be like a parrot, but I, I do think that a that most of them are, uh, again, walrus notwithstanding, I think they are not real animals. But they are these weird (laughs) sort of animal hybrids. Um, Yeah, I think Ringo is supposed to be like a chicken or a parrot. He's green, though. Yeah, it's got to be like a, I don't know. And he's got yellow legs. Is he a duck, maybe? Well, exactly. But they don't look like ancient mythology style like they're not in leotards with like wings and you know what i'm saying yeah they're they're furries they're fucking furries <laughs> you know they're they're dressed in giant 
furry mascot costumes. Yeah. Um, which later becomes associated with people who like to have sex dressed as <laughs> stuffed animals. Right. Um, which I don't think it was at the time. Like, I don't, I like, meaning I don't think that's what they're doing in right. the Magical Mystery Tour. Right. I think they're just being weird. Mm-hmm. I definitely think uh, Kubrick is riffing off of what the Beatles started in Magical Mystery Tour. Yeah, it's... It's hard not to see that. It's hard to argue that it's not yeah. an influence. And I get that costumes, like if you look at old school Mickey Mouse, like the, the costume characters at Disneyland in mm. the 50s or 60s, they're creepy. Like they're e- extremely yeah. creepy. So I get that old school costumes were pretty creepy. But you're also talking... If not Magical Mystery Tour, then at least The Shining, this is a large budget, intricately designed production. Like they could do anything. And the fact that this is the bear costume, like it just looks so similar. It's the same, like a pretty detailed, but still very creepy mask over the face with no fur on it. So it's not like a full head thing, like a single headpiece. And then like a hood, like a furry hood or something. And then a super furry body. Like it's so similar. Yeah, 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 it's so similar. And like we saw in A Clockwork Orange, uh, there is a scene where uh, there's a record store and there is Magical Mystery Tour prominently displayed. Like, there's a lot of Kubrick Beatles crossover. So the idea of this just being random, like, coincidence seems very unlikely to me. I agree. And then the other obvious thing is John's waiter character yeah. who's a dead ringer for Lloyd, the bartender. Yeah, that was interesting. And I don't know, maybe that's a thing where waiters and bartenders in England wear red tuxedos, but like, it's so similar. Um, and I know the shining is set in the U S but was filmed in, um, England. And, you know, by the time of the shining Kubrick lived in England and made all his films there. So, well, in any case, yeah, he's got a red coat and you could be like, okay, well, so the bartender has a red coat and John has a red coat, whatever. But, they do have the same slicked back hair. Yeah, it's a real similar look. It really is. And then the other thing is the odd cutaways to the crowd is yeah. a magical mystery tour that to me mimics the the famous portrait on the wall of the overlook of the whole of the whole staff and Jack in the middle of it. Um you know, again, that could be a bit of a stretch because it's just a crowd and a picture of a crowd, you know. <laughs> Um, but the camera's in the same position. The crowd is always looking up at exactly the same angle. So it is striking to me. I mean, I, every time I see the shining, it's still though. All of those images still relentlessly remind me of magical mystery tour. Yeah. It's interesting. And I agree that like that one's a little bit more tenuous because it is just a crowd shot. But, you know, it is sim- it's framed the same way. You've got the angle. Like, it is very similar. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm, I can kind of buy that. Like, if we're saying that, that Kubrick um, 
was influenced in some way by Magical Mystery Tour, then I could see that being just not? another influence. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think the the costume, that bear costume, is the biggest link. Uh, you know, like once you see it, you can't unsee it. Right. We just named like three different pieces of imagery that are borrowed from Magical Mystery Tour, but I don't think any of those images share any meaning. Like there's no crossover from their meaning in Magical Mystery Tour to their meaning in The Shining. <laughs> like it's right. simply a visual reference. Yeah. And you kind of wonder what's up. Although, you know, as we, as we know, there's other links between Kubrick and the Beatles, but, um, and of course we don't know where the, that costume design came from. We don't know how closely uh, he was involved in the creation. It could be that the costume designer Gave came the same prop shop. No, it, but it could be the, <laughs> that the costume designer came up with this design and showed it to Kubrick, and you know maybe he had nothing to do with its um, with its design or its construction. You know, it could have just entirely come from the costume designer. Uh, maybe, I don't know, but that's that seems more far fetched. Me. I mean, obviously he signed off on it. Uh, and I yeah. would think that he would have given some direction because it's it's an yeah. unusual costume. Well, and you're putting it in for a specific reason. I mean, there's no re you know, it's a two it's like a two or three second shot in the film, but it there's a lot of weight in that two or three second shot. Like Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the, like he emphasizes it with a zoom. So clearly it's yeah. meant to be sort of a moment of shock. Um, it's a and it's a horror. It, yeah. and it's a horror for for Wendy. Um, for Wendy, exactly. So it's not like, oh, oops, sorry, guys, I didn't mean to walk <laughs> in on you. You're having yeah. fun in there, you know. Clearly, it's it's about something besides, um, uh, the like the waiter getting a blowjob, right? Right. Like, who cares if the waiter's getting a blowjob? Um, so it's important. Right? Yeah. So what it looks like is important because it's conveying some sort of meaning. But again, this isn't the Shining episode. So um, if you <laughs> want could to go do the Shining episode, <laughs> I would that be... would be 14 hours long. Oh, yeah, Lord. that'll be on our other podcast. <laughs> anyway, um, but then Kristen found a blog from Julie Kearns called Idilipus Press. Mm -hmm. And... Kearns has a really outstanding shot-by-shot -shot analysis of A Clockwork Orange on her website where she screen caps a scene from the record shop where, incidentally, Alex is dressed in an overcoat reminiscent of Paul's Fool on the Hill segment. Right. Um, and in the record shop featured, you know, above the clerk is a copy of Magical Mystery Tour. Yeah. Like Kearns writes, also, what sits above the desk at the record store but the Beatles' Magical Mystery Tour, which also returns us to the idea of the hallucinatory tour, though in a more mystical way, and recalls 2001. But going back before you leave the Clockwork Orange thing, it's not yeah. that it just is in the record store. It's not like it's an incident. Like, it's prominently displayed, and it's right on eye level, uh, with um, Alex's character, like it's it's meant to be seen. It's I, I, like that was a conscious choice. That's not just like uh, telling you know the production designer and the prop master to just go out and buy a bunch of records and just put them wherever. Like they made a choice to very prominently yeah. display Magical Mystery Tour. It, you're right. It is it is like dead center between the two actors, and also like you could have picked any Beatles 
record at that point. And and this is a few years after they broken up. Magical Mystery Tour is certainly not their most popular album. Like it will probably make more sense to throw Abbey Road up there or the White right. Album or whatever. You know. Yeah, Clockwork Orange is seventy one. So if you're gonna put an album, you have the entirety of the Beatles catalog that you can put up at that point. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Like there's a definite reason to put up Magical Mystery Tour. So for those who weren't aware of the story, and I just discovered the story through the DVD commentary, but apparently the colorized footage used in the flying sequence in Magical Mystery Tour <laughs> were outtakes from Dr. Strangelove, courtesy of Dennis O'Dell, who was the Beatles movie producer. And he was talking to Paul and he said, oh, I've got loads and loads of leftover aerial footage from the desert and all that sort of stuff. And you're welcome to it if you want it. So Paul's like, yeah, we absolutely do. Yeah. And I guess Kubrick was not real happy about that, right? He was like, that's my footage in your movie. Well, it is kind of, I mean, I can understand that. I mean, I could also understand just being flattered and being like, all right, take my scraps, you know. I guess, but that doesn't sound, I, I'd be surprised if any filmmaker was like, oh, I see that you've used my footage without permission. <laughs> what, what a great honor, <laughs> you know, like, it sounds like they just had access to the footage and they were like, oh, let's use this. It's just sitting around. And it's not footage from the movie. Um, it's, you know, been, you know, cutting room floor, but still. But he borrows back from Magical Mystery Tour. That's the thing. That's what's interesting. So it's, it, it almost feels reciprocal. Or petty. Maybe. I don't like, know. I guess, but not to be whatever, but... It's just aerial footage. Yeah. Meaning like, meaning it's, it's not as if you watch it and you go only Stanley Kubrick could have told someone to point the camera there. Like it's right. No, for sure. But, um, it's B roll. <laughs> like it's B roll. I, and I'm not sure how close it is to anything that's actually in, in the, the film. And this is a couple of years after Dr. Strangelove. And of course, this is before, you know, any kind of home video. So it's not like people are going to watch it and be like, oh, I'm, I remember those shots from Dr. Strangelove. Like nobody had seen Dr. Right, Strangelove right. for like three years or however, <laughs> you know, so it's not like it was fresh in their minds. But um, in that same blog post that you were reading from Julie Kearns, she says, um, he had access to the Dr. Strangelove footage and his use of the footage resulted in an angry Kubrick. It, he'd be angry with Dennis O'Dell. I mean, he was the guy who had the footage. Oh, for he sure. Gave it to Paul. Like, yeah. And you know, and to the Beatles, uh, credit, they did colorize them and they made it. I mean, obviously, uh, Strangelove is in black and white, you know, it was probably just at the, at the studio, you know, they probably just stored the, the outtakes I know that the Hollywood studios in the late 60s, like they were selling off their back lots. They were selling off, you know, Dorothy's ruby slippers. Mm -hmm. They Like they were yeah. struggling yeah. financially. The last thing that they cared about was some producer coming in and, and just ganking some B-roll. In fact, that was pretty common <laughs> for the same yeah. B-roll and the same background. Sure. Like it, that right, was right, right. the establishing shots and whatnot. That would be yeah. used like 
uh, recycled. Yeah. yeah. Like that's yeah, a cost saving measure. Um, sure, that kind sure. of stuff is recycled all the time. And so I could totally see Odell just walking in and saying, oh, yeah, and there's this footage that we could use here. I, I, I know where it is. I'm just going to go get it. And the people <laughs> at the studio going, I don't care. I'm, I'm not surprised that he could have just gone in and taken it. I don't think the studio would have cared. I don't think yeah. anybody would have cared. And I can see why they wouldn't contact Kubrick about it. Um, sure, sure. But I can also see why Kubrick see would why be, be pissed, pissed that yeah. this footage that was his and now it's in this random Beatles film. All right, so um, I'm going to read this from Kern's website. She wrote, Kubrick's aerial footage for Dr. Strangelove feeds the Beatles' magical mystery tour. Did their colorized use of it feed Kubrick ideas for 2001? In the use of colorized aerial footage, was he also referencing Magical Mystery Tour, which would take us straight back to Dr. Strangelove? After the above colorized footage in Magical Mystery Tour, the camera turns skyward, and a voiceover states, Beyond the blue horizon, far above the clouds, in a land that no one knows, live four or five magicians who spend their days casting wonderful spells. Come with me now into that secret place where the eyes of man have never set foot. They're the ones responsible for the Magical Mystery Tour. Sounds a little like Dave's finding himself in the hotel beyond the infinite and the rudimentary idea of some kind of higher intelligence having guided humankind via the monolith and finally Dave through the Stargate. There's also that very weird story about the Beatles wanting to do a film adaptation of Lord of the oh Rings. God. That's the With best John story. Playing Gollum and Paul playing Frodo and how they wanted Stanley Kubrick to direct it. God. Yeah, I don't know. I wish that that had happened. I really do. It would have been awful. <laughs> but I don't know it, that it would have been like the worst thing ever. I mean, well, it wouldn't have been an it would not have been a faithful adaptation, let's put it that way. But right. but they could have done something weird and different with it. Yeah. I mean, it's it, not it going to be been, it's not going to be Peter Jackson. <laughs> no, no. It would be a very, very uh, loose interpretation, I think. I think it was all John's idea. I think. Really? Was John yeah. like a big Lord of the Rings nerd Apparently, or something? Apparently, nice. I guess. Yeah. I so, I mean, clearly there was mutual admiration. Did they? Have, do we know if they ever met? I, I honestly don't know. I don't know. John was probably insulted. That Kubrick wasn't interested. Like, he probably hurt his feelings that Kubrick wasn't interested. Um, Do you think so? Well, I think so, because in 1969, he told the newspaper that one of his short films was better than 2001. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure it was. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Um, Yeah. But that's, God, that does sound like something that just a sort of pissed off. You know, somebody who's just not used to people saying no, which by that point, the Beatles are not used to people turning them down, I'm sure. Uh, And especially if it's this is John's dream project, I can see him being upset. (laughs) To play Gollum. (laughs) In a a, a 
Kubrick. Oh like my how? god! Oh, John would have chewed the scenery oh, like god damn. No one else, though. He really would have been great. Honestly, like I think John is amazing on screen. John is fantastic. Like he's got a great personality. He has great energy. He's yeah. really natural on camera. He's really playful. Yeah. I have no issues with John on screen. Like, I, yeah, I think yeah. he's fantastic. And he actually might have made a good golem because he gets into the yeah. the roles. Like, it's something that I've enjoyed in seeing him in these different films is that he's not phoning it in. He's not just like, yeah. oh, this fucking movie. Like, he's... He's like, yes, I'm going to put on this wizard hat and I'm going to frolic. He's just into yeah, it. He's he like, I'm, does. I yeah. am the walrus. God damn it. He <laughs> yeah, sells yeah. it. Well, in that opening scene <clears throat> in the Magical Mystery Tour, where Ringo comes up to buy the ticket. It's fun to watch him do that. He's yeah. Like, this is a thousand percent in the, in the newspaper seller role. Yeah. He doesn't even have lines. I could see him. I could, I mean, I don't know that Paul would have been redeemable as an actor, but I could <laughs> totally see John under Kubrick's direction. I could totally see him actually being good in that part because he, you know, he was, he seemed open yeah. to try things. He seemed open to like actually putting on a, you know, making the effort. I wonder what it was in Kubrick's filmography that made John Lennon think, yeah, this dude. That's an excellent question, because I would like to know that, too. I mean, because this is before... <laughs> like Lolita? Like, what? Because this what is before is? Barry Lyndon. It's, yeah, Lolita Spartacus? <laughs> like, what What exactly was Probably, it? Probably, maybe. It could have been Dr. Strangelove. It was, it's such a great movie. And it was such a sort of, you know, uh, groundbreaking movie. So maybe it was just like, this is a great movie. Let's get this director. Who knows? Yeah, who knows is exactly right. Let's move on to Weekend. Yes. <laughs> what did you think of, of Weekend? And when you saw it, did you see why I wanted to discuss it at the same time with Magical Mystery Tour? Yeah, I absolutely did. It's, I mean, obviously, it's a very different movie different. in very many ways. <laughs> but as far as its absurdist take on a road trip, uh, its, you know, use of experimental techniques its use of surrealism mm -hmm. um I, I mean yeah you've got all of that going on um certainly i mean the use of the uh, godard's use of the titles that that sort of pop in yeah. and they're just sort of meaningless um yeah. and the dark comedy although you don't really the comedy isn't terribly dark in magical mystery tour but um you know it it, it is a little bit dark here and there, um, I guess. Um, but yeah, for sure. Um, just it's sort of absurdism. I mean, Weekend is obviously more nihilistic. It's more, yeah. um, it's much darker. It's much, uh, much more political, obviously. Oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, it's not a direct parallel. But the fact that they both came out th at the same time and... Yeah. Um, and they're both road trip movies, which is, you know, that's like an old workhorse genre, sure. you know, yeah, the road right, trip, right. like that's goes back to, you know, their early days of cinema. And so the fact that they're both kind of reimagining what a road trip movie is, 
um, and that they're reimagining what filmmaking is. They're both using some really interesting editing techniques that are very similar. And of course, the Beatles uh, listing Breathless uh, as one of their influences um, for Magical Mystery Tour. So you've got that parallel. Like they're obviously familiar with Godard and they're obviously like drawing from inspiration from his um, his techniques, or at least the, you know, new wave techniques that Godard used. Yeah, there's, I think there's a lot there. There were also a couple of shots in Magical Mystery Tour just of the, it sounds corny to say because, you know, comparing the French countryside to like the English countryside, I think they are shot most likely at pretty much the same time. Um, mm-hmm. Magical Mystery Tour was shot in September of 67. Mm-hmm. Weekend looks like it was probably shot at the beginning of summer, although I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely looks like summer yeah. in France. Best I could find is that its first U.S. showing was in 1968. I don't know when it came to London. I would assume it would be prior to that. Right. But I don't know that it would have been available for screening prior to the shooting of Magical Mystery Tour. So point being, like, I think they were kind of shot around the same time. Right. Yeah. Like definitely the Beatles would not have seen this before. Yeah. 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 That's my point. Mm-hmm. They're sort of on the same plane. Yeah. Uh, time wise. When I started reading about Weekend, I saw it referred to as a, a picaresque journey. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Which, yeah, exactly. Like you said, sure. Like it's kind of like it's a road trip. Mm-hmm. Okay. It, like it is. Yeah. Um, It's definitely um, a non-traditional road trip movie. I mean, my understanding of a picaresque, and like you can correct me if I'm wrong, like a voyage or a journey wherein somebody meets and interacts with a bunch of working class characters who they learn from or interact with in, in some way or whatever. Yeah, and you might have... The protagonist might be a bit of an anti-hero, more kind of, but not like a bad guy, more like a kind of a, a rogue or something, you know, like, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think that might be a part of it. But yeah, it's, and it's sort of episodic and their adventures. And so, I mean, kind of, but I, th- I, I think of picaresque being more like, quaint i guess i don't know um well i I, I thought that magical mystery tour fit that description yeah better than weekend did yeah obviously weekend is a lot about class right yeah Um, oh very much so (laughs) yeah like overtly Mm -hmm. about um the war of the classes and eating the rich and all that yeah (laughs) (laughs) um quite literally Uh uh-huh and magical mystery tour is not Mm mm-hmm but it definitely is entrenched in affection for the working class, as is much of the Beatles' oeuvre, actually. Sure. Um, you know, well, Penny Lane. Yeah, which it would have to be. I mean, you know, even after the Beatles got rich, they it's not like they forgot their roots. They weren't raised rich. They weren't raised in privilege. Well, and some of their other films go back to that as well. Yellow Submarine kind of starts that way, too. The, the streets of Liverpool mm-hmm. where Ringo is, you know, walking and then he goes on this crazy psychedelic journey and stuff <laughs> like that. But um, like the roots of the Beatles always go back to working class Liverpool. And 
Paul specifically, it's just like a recurring theme in a lot of his work. A lot of the Beatles' work at that time in 1967 is sort of focused on themes of childhood and like Liverpool roots and stuff like that. And I think because the initial idea for the Magical Mystery Tour, as you probably have heard at some point on some of the commentary or so, something you read or whatever, is that it was based on these real bus tours that yeah, existed yeah. Um, where people would just pay a nominal fee and then they'd get on a bus and go on a mystery trip, which was basically just drive up the coast for a little bit and get drunk right. and eat sandwiches and go home. <laughs> right. Right. But as Paul said, it was always like, it sounded fantastical. Like, yeah. It could be anything, of course. And like, if you are, you know, a little creative, artistic, budding musical genius who lives in this this drab existence, this post-war Liverpool, in your mind, you're like, wow, it's a magical mystery tour. Like, oh, it could yeah. be going anywhere. Yeah. I think that's super, super charming. Yeah. It's a great idea for, I'm going to base a movie on that. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's other... Precedents, like you mentioned um, that Paul likes Dickens. And so, you know, certainly this idea of, of you know, hitting the road and, and coming across a bunch of adventures, you see that in so many Dickens novels, mm-hmm. you see that in David Copperfield, and you see it like in Tom Jones, which was a huge movie in the early 60s, a British film um, by Tony Richardson. Um, and that is picaresque to me. Like you have this sort of roguish, uh, (laughs) hero who goes out and just like encounters all sorts of adventures and makes his way in the world. And so I could see those being, uh, precedents to magical mystery tour as well. And then, and, you know, and also in a sense to weekend, this idea of the sort of an episodic road trip. Um, but of course, you know, Godard goes in a whole other direction uh, with his road trip and makes it about, uh, you know, sort of this this commentary on society and on class and on race and on, you know, the uh, Algerian independence plays yeah, a role sure. and like all of this stuff uh, that's just really intense and brilliant and, and crazy Um you know, so obviously he kind of runs with this road trip theme in a very different way than the Beatles do. There's a moment in in Weekend where they meet like Little Bo Peep or something. They, it's Alice in Wonderland. Oh, it is Alice. Yeah, in I'm pretty sure it's Alice in Wonderland uh, because the man. Well, they call her Emily Bronte, which is weird, but the man <laughs> is um, Lewis Carroll, and I think okay. they even refer to it as Lewis Carroll Way or something. So I think that's meant to. be kind of an Alice in Wonderland reference. I Am the Walrus is obviously um, an Alice in Wonderland mm-hmm. reference. Or Lewis Carroll reference. Right. Anyway. Was that a thing in popular culture at the time? I feel like yeah. Lewis Carroll became very popular in the mid-60s due to acid. Was it also <laughs> due to Grace acid. Slick wrote that song? No, seriously. Well, like, yeah. Was, I mean, right? White Rabbit. Like, when does that, well, yeah. when does that song come out? Like, that's from 1967. Okay. So Alice in Wonderland, obviously, you know, sort of just a big part of popular culture anyway. And you have the Disney version, which is from the mm-hmm. early 50s. The Disney film has a re-release in the early 70s and it's marketed to college kids. That's you know, is. Disney is not like drop acid and come see our movie, but it is kind of marketed as 
sort of a wink, wink, check out this yeah. psychedelic trip of a film. And so, yeah, there's definitely this link between Alice in Wonderland and um, like the counterculture, the counterculture, and sort of drug culture. Dr- yeah, and and it's it's pretty strong in the '60s. Like, definitely, um, you know, that would have been a, con- a connection that wouldn't have been too hard to make. Yeah, and it wasn't just the Beatles. Yeah, oh no. Yeah, that was like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. current in popular culture. But again, makes makes Weekend a very, very 1967 film. Yeah. Oh, God, this is a late 60s French film. Because like all of the, you know, those student protests that you get in the late 60s in France and, um, you know, just this sort of yeah. interest in Marxism. And of course, Godard is like the most political of that initial crop of new wave directors anyway like he definitely um you know wants to use cinema for political purposes very much so so um yeah it is very much a late 1960s Jean-Luc Godard film there's actually a reference to the Beatles in the movie I don't know oh really if you saw it yeah there's a do you remember that section where there's a guy playing a piano in like a chop shop or you know, yeah like a, yeah uh-huh. chop shop but like at a um junkyard yeah basically uh-huh. <laughs> with tons of car parts like this this movie is just absolutely strewn with car parts all oh my this god like, how many cars did they go through oh, in this yeah, film jesus christ it should be called cars <laughs> so many fucking cars yes there's a dude playing a piano he's playing a sonata by mozart mm-hmm. and he's going oh you know music today you know like you listen to music or you don't listen to music and mozart is something you listen to and he would be rich today he could be selling out but nobody goes to classical concerts nowadays basically what he's going on about. But he says, like, ironically, modern music is all influenced by Mozart. And he mentions <laughs> Dario Moreno, uh, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, right. which, you know, Dario Moreno is a very, it's almost offensive to lump him in with the Beatles. <laughs> like, but uh, sure, dude, whatever. And also the Rolling Stones, like, I take the point with the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Like, I definitely hear a lot of um, Mozart, especially in McCartney's music. Like, we're not the first people to make that yeah. connection. A lot of people compare him to Mozart. Sure. Um, the Rolling Stones, not so much. Like, I, <laughs> that is a real stretch. I really don't hear a lot of Mozart yeah. in the Stones. Maybe that was the point that he was making, was more about popular music yes. or i i That's don't know exactly yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> weekend's a movie that calls itself uh adrift in the cosmos and also a film found in the scrap heap right so film, yeah so it definitely is sort of embracing the idea that it's not a traditional narrative and that it's kind of chopped up into pieces which it kind of is yeah it does have a quality of like chopped up and stuck together with weird placards and for sure and there is kind of there's a through line such as it is um you know there is a central plot with uh the couple with roland and corinne going to see her father before he dies so that the mother 
doesn't take all of the father's money and they can have some of the father's money. And then, so like there is that central premise or plot line, but it doesn't, (laughs) like it's not at all what the movie is actually about. Um, And, you know, we lose, like it is this, this couple like trying to get to their destination, which is, again, is another kind of old tried and true um, yeah. you know, variation on the road film, like running into all these obstacles and and setbacks and, you know, mm-hmm. having to go through multiple modes of transportation. Like, that's a really, really common uh, way of telling these, these movies. Homer. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, so there's nothing new there, but, you know. Like, like why they're, they're constantly having to uh, find new transportation or the obstacles that they're encountering are certainly um, unique to this film. Like there are a lot of uh, highways that are just strewn with bloody bodies and cars on fire, like again and again and again and again. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, <laughs> it's definitely a very unique film. And, but yeah, I mean, as far as, you know, It's very much of the time Um, and very French in a way that Magical Mystery Tour is very British, I think. Like both of them them speak to their national context as well as their time period. Yes, absolutely. I was just going to make the same observation. Well, again, it's like it's it's hard to pull meaning from Magical Mystery Tour because I don't think there is a lot of. No, I don't think so. You know, like I just don't think there's a lot of there's a lot of subtext in it. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think it's safe to say that Jean-Luc Godard put a little bit more thought into the meaning behind his film than the Beatles did. I disagree. No way. No way. (laughs) I don't think that's a controversial statement that Godard was really trying to say something and the Beatles were really trying to have fun. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, I'm definitely not knocking either one of them, you know. They're d- different films made for different purposes and for different audiences. So the thing is, over the last year or two since Help, I've had thousands of ideas, but they've all been Help and Hard Day's Night revisited. It's no good. We've got to have something good. And the how we visualize the film it's got to be at least the difference between help the song help and sergeant pepper as the movie's got to be that progressed too i think paul had the idea and wrote a song called magical mystery tour and at that time i don't think it was definite that we'd use it for a tv show but the idea was still there so we recorded the song we recorded it shortly after sergeant pepper we want everybody to be able to freak out, as it were. But we don't have frightened, you know, some people get a bit frightened when, like, day in the life of that record, when the music suddenly goes strange and they don't know what it is. And the natural thing when people don't know about something, they tend to fear it. So we don't want them to be puzzled by what's going on. So this way we can do, we can freak out a little bit. But it's the excuses that it's a magical mystery tour. All right, so let's just go ahead and talk about this movie that we've both sort of decided that we enjoyed for the most part. Yeah, absolutely. 
It was a fun watch. It had some amazing good songs in it. Mm-hmm. And um, was not a chore to watch. I mean, I that's the one thing that I, again, kind of push back on a little bit. Because, y- you know, you, you read a lot of reviews. I mean, even in Beatle books or whatever. Like, the, the conventional wisdom is that, like, it's so terrible. It was a vanity project. It was... Um, mishandled chaos hubris all these awful adjectives that they use to just sort of characterize it as like a big they should have known better kind of like ill-fated disaster and like i I just don't see it as a disaster i just see it as like a film that wasn't great but but was fine you know yeah i mean obviously if they weren't the beatles it wouldn't have aired on TV yeah, yeah. on Boxing Day after Petula Clark if they weren't the Beatles. So, I mean, you know, and there is some truth to the idea that it's a vanity project because, yeah, they're like, they're just going out and sort of indulging themselves and having fun and, and just kind of, you know, goofing around and assuming that people are going to want to watch that. But that doesn't mean that it's not watchable. It is. It is. And the other thing is that it wasn't like Paul's like, I'm the best, greatest new director and you have to see my great works. <laughs> he was just like, none of us want to go to do a movie. And, you know, he talks a lot in the commentaries about like, he, like we just didn't want to be told what to do. Yeah. Honestly, a lot of it, I think, has to do with that. The, the following year, not actually very long after this, they create Apple. Like they create their own yeah, company to to put out records and films and like that's the whole point of Apple is that they're going to be in control of all that mm-hmm. and that they get to greenlight other people's projects. Yeah, new up and coming talent and stuff like that. So, which again is a is an amazing idea, an amazing uh, concept and effort on their part. Yeah. So, the, I just see this as sort of part and parcel of that whole um, mentality and. Rather than go into a studio and have somebody write them a script and put words in their mouth. And you got to remember, like, the movie before this was Help, which is, it's not good. You know, it's like a pseudo James Bond. It has, like, no charm, really, to it. Um, It's not near and dear to their hearts. It has nothing to do with them, really, you know. So they wanted to make something that was more of what they wanted to make. So from that angle, I applaud them. If they had just gone out and made this movie privately and it just became like a little film that they showed to their friends, like they just screened it for their buddies or they put it in the clubs or even if like they showed it at Apple or something, it would be badass. Like it would be great. Like if we just found it years later and we're like finally available to the public, you know? Yeah. Um, I feel like it would be really, really loved. But all the discourse of this movie, it sort of hinges on the fact that it was aired on the BBC and that everybody hated it. And it's like, that's as far as the conversation goes. And it's just tiresome to me. I think we need to get past that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's not deep and it's not intellectual, but it's fun and it's joyous. And, you know, the the Beatles are still having a great time and they enjoy each other's company and there's some good stuff in it. Like, you know, just beyond it being sort of fun to watch them, there are some good moments and some good ideas and some, you know, some solid bits. I mean, and the, you know, the premise of the film is kind of fun. This idea of this magical mystery tour, this bus, um, you know, even if it's not quite fully realized, it's still, 
uh, a, a solid premise and they do some good things with it. Let's talk about Paul's pie chart script. Such a great idea. <laughs> it's definitely outside the box. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like it's not a terrible instinct because Magical Mystery Tour is a journey film. And I guess it does make a full revolution, or that is the idea, I suppose, that it comes full circle. Mm-hmm. And oh, it's made for TV, so it is 60 minutes. So it's a sensible way to apportion the time. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. And, you know, it's not like they have a traditional script, so they need to figure out, you know, what all the moving pieces are and where they're going to go and how much time you're going to allot to each one. I think it's a great idea. I really do. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> and also... Paul's very visual, mm -hmm. and he said that whenever he had to organize his ideas, he would draw them. Yeah. So to me, it's just kind of a very natural, interesting, unique way for him to um, put his ideas and uh, make them come to fruition. Yeah. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, and, it, you know, it sounds like it made sense for the other bandmates. You know, they were able to use that script and to um, make sense of it. Yeah, I mean, I can kind of get why it's a funny... You know, it's like you hold up that picture and it's kind of a funny sight gag, you know? It's like, this is the script. It's a coaster, you know? Like, right, well, kinda... yeah, and, you know, Ringo says in one of the uh, special features on the DVD, he holds up a paper and he says, this is what Paul showed me. And it's just like a circle with a dot at the top. And he's like, this is what we had to start with. And it's like, what <laughs> the hell is that? But then once you see like the actual filled out pie chart, it's like, oh, okay, well that kind of makes sense. <laughs> but it's like the things that always jump out are like the smiley face, lunch in big letters and like stripper, <laughs> right? like stripper, lunch and smiley face. Those are Paul's priorities. He's like, listen. <laughs> so, well, I mean, you know. I got the important parts We got down. strippers, we got food and we got happiness, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Everything else will fall into place. Exactly. <laughs> When a man buys a ticket for a magical mystery tour, he knows what to expect. We guarantee him the trip of a lifetime, and that's just what he gets. The incredible magical mystery tour. Um, I really liked the voiceover, John's voiceover. I thought that was yeah. um, just sort of clever and um kind of cheeky and just i don't know i thought that was um a nice touch and that i think he delivers it really well and the just this montage that begins the film i think is just very late 60s very <laughs> yeah uh you know but in a, in a great way like it really speaks to so many of the filmic trends that we've talked about and it really speaks to youth culture and um, the sort of irreverence and, um, you know, this sort of counterculture movement. And, and they, they do a really nice job with it. Uh, you know, I, I think they had a good editor. <laughs> and um, But I know the Beatles were pretty closely involved in the editing of the film. And I, I think they really, the editing really makes that opening sequence. 
I agree. I, I thought it was a good overview of the film, too. Like, they mm-hmm. basically do tell you what you're going to get in the film. Yeah. The only, <laughs> the one thing that was sort of dropped in the very beginning when they, like, sort of are boarding the bus and, like, when it first starts to take off is Paul gets a little bit of a scene with the hostess where he's sort of flirting with her and, like, yeah. And then he takes her glasses off and she kind of looks at the camera like, all right mm-hmm. where, what's going on here yeah so i, I, I was kind of like all right well you set that up but then they never close the deal on that like there's never even a, a second scene with them they could have thrown in one other scene where at least they go off on a date or something you know i just figured like that would be one little thread that they could have put in there is that's that funny Paul i didn't all has a romance with the I didn't yeah. miss that at all as a narrative thread. I was just like, <laughs> all right, Paul is just kind of because it's it did seem like at the beginning it was everybody just kind of interacting with the people around them. And of course, at the beginning, you don't realize that that's, you know, Richard Starkey's Aunt Jessica that he's sitting next to. So you just kind of think that like that's everybody's true. just kind of interacting with the people next to them and Paul's being flirty with the girl next to him. And so. Yeah, I wasn't really missing anything from that. I mean, that was my only thought was that they kind of set it up, but they didn't go anywhere. Yeah. Which I guess is kind of funny in its own way. In the next scene, he's heading on another different lady. And I I liked that he was sort of playing himself, but Mm -hmm. as a creep, you know, like he's kind of creeping it up. Day after day. Alone on a hill The man with the foolish grin is keeping perfectly still As as Paul often does, he's mentioned a couple of different points of inspiration for this particular song. And one he said he was thinking of a Maharishi type figure, you know, kind of like a guru on uh-huh. a hill or something, which I can believe. You know, because as he's fleshing the song out or forming the song, mm-hmm. he has to have a picture in his head. The song does sort of evoke that kind of imagery and whatever. But I like I definitely think Paul is the fool in the hill. Yeah. <laughs> He'll always deflect by saying it was the Maharishi or, you know, something sure. like that. But um, he did say in his biography many years from now. I'm just going to read this segment. Okay, so apologies if I am butchering this woman's name, but Marek used to read my fortune in tarot cards, which was something I wasn't too keen on because I didn't want to draw the death card one day. (laughs) I still don't like that kind of stuff because I know my mind will dwell on it. I always steered a bit clear of all that shit, but in fact, it always used to come out as the fool And I used to say, oh, dear. And she used to say, no, 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 the fool's a very good card. On the surface, it looks stupid, the fool. But in fact, it's one of the best cards because it's the innocent. It's the child. It's that reading of the fool. So I began to like the word fool because I began to see through the surface meaning. I wrote The Fool on the Hill out of that experience of seeing tarot cards. Oh, interesting. I was wondering if it had something to do with the fool tarot card because he's typically depicted standing like on a cliff and about to take mm-hmm. a step off of it um but obviously like paul says it's not about being dumb or being foolish it's about being innocent and taking risks and yeah it's it's about a lot of other things that's that's lovely isn't it yeah it really is you know there's a um like more of a demo version that's sort of circulated it might have been on like the beatles anthology or something hmm. 
of just Paul on the piano, which feels feels a bit more serious. Like I feel like the recorder uh-huh. that they add on the on the Beatle version kind of takes an edge off of the song a bit. Like it, it makes it a little bit more poppy. Yeah, and it's kind of like in the filming, having Paul standing there, sort of gazing dramatically off into the distance makes it seem very serious but then he just starts cavorting and dancing around and it uh, it, that also takes kind of the edge off yeah i mean i've seen it like huh interesting um but then i've also seen it other times where i'm just like fuck that is devastating that's a lot like like what like when we were texting it was Mm -hmm. like this is kind of a Hard open, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like a lighthearted film. It's a lot to open with because we were just <laughs> watching, you know, Ringo and Aunt Jesse, you know, arguing or whatever. And then all of a sudden, the fool on the hill. And it is a lot, but I, I like it. I mean, I don't think it's a complete tonal shift. It's just sort of this nice, no. quiet moment. He's really good at like not overdoing it, right? Yeah. So it doesn't feel like a heavy song. Yeah, agreed. That Paul McCartney knows how to write songs. Apparently, he does. He's got a future ahead of him. Actually, I thought that marathon was going to be one of the more interesting parts of the Mm -hmm. film. Mm -hmm. And it was actually, for me. I didn't take anything deep away from it. Uh Uh-huh. But I thought it was interesting that the priests were playing... Smear the Queer. I'm sorry. I think there's a probably a different word for it. Do you know what I'm talking no, about? No, I don't. So they were all in a group, and they blindfolded one participant, and then they all, like, gathered around and were sort of, like, kicking him, and he was trying to, like, tag somebody. Hmm. That's Smear the Queer, isn't it? I have no idea. I think it's called, like, Kick... Like kick the dick or smear the ears. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Jeez. I've never heard of any of that. Yeah, so they were playing that. They were playing okay. that. And I think it was like a bunch of priests and then one non priest. Hmm. The rugby players, the priests, the sack the sack races. Sure. There's like wrestlers and then there's little kids and old ladies and you know, everybody's yeah. running together. It's like I did love the makeup of that yeah. race. I loved Ringo driving the bus. Because he looked like he was having such a good time. And he talks about it in the special features. Like, I got to drive the bus. And the fan club secretaries were like, that was the scariest five yeah. minutes of <laughs> like my life. Like, we were in that and we thought we were going <laughs> to crash. It's scary. kind of Like, when you realize, like, oh, they don't have professional drivers here. Like, that's Ringo driving a bus. <laughs> yeah. And you can see that bus leaning on the turns. Yeah, and it's like, oh, it's... shit, this is not safe. I love Aunt Jessica. Yeah, she was really good. She's fantastic. Um, And I don't know anything about that actress. Um, If she did anything else before that or after, like what her career was, but I just love her. Um, I would so go on a road trip with Ringo and Aunt Jessie. (laughs) (laughs) That would be the most fun. I loved everything about those two. And I loved her, um, I know this is later in the film, but her whole like romp on the beach with, Mr. Blood Vessel is just so fun. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I love Aunt Jessie. That was one of the nicer scenes in the in the movie, actually. Mm-hmm. I really like that. Yeah. And With this orchestral version of All My Lovin' played in the background. 
Which is beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. I was, ex- I kept expecting the music to be sort of overwrought and like yeah. excessively romantic, but it wasn't. It was just a really lovely uh, version of it, which was sort well, of nice. Well, that's... And, and like uh, to hear Paul in the commentary, it's like that's what he envisioned. He was like, I just wanted like a quirky little f- French film, like a little romance. Yeah. You know, and the BBC made him cut that scene. That's which is so insane. sad. It is so sad. And I kind of get it. If you need to cut something for time, you look for the longer sequences that don't have the Beatles in them because people aren't tuning in to watch you know, Buster Blood Vessel and Aunt Jessie. But oh, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I don't know. I definitely don't think that's why. But it had a sort of strange little romantic quality, like a sort of weird little French film or something. <laughs> um... Anyway, what happened eventually, we put it together and we thought, that's kind of touching, that's nice. Um, But when we took it to the BBC, this was the one scene they made us cut out. And I couldn't fathom it for the life of me. I went to see a guy called Paul Fox, who was the head of entertainment or something, BBC, and I had a meeting with him. And... uh, he said, no, we're going to cut that scene. I, um, I don't ever think I've got a great explanation other than he well thought it was weird. I thought it was kind of romantic. The entirety of the thing on the beach couldn't have been more than two and a half minutes. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was kind of the one of the better sequences in the film. And I like that it's not... Um, like, it very easily could have turned into a mean joke at Aunt Jessie's expense. It's like, not at all. Look at the big lady. Um, isn't she ridiculous? Look at the old man. Isn't he ridiculous? Um, and, it, you know, it very easily could have turned into some kind of mean-spirited uh, jokes at her expense. And I don't think it does at all. I think it's very sweet. I mean, you know, of course it's a dream sequence, although they don't really say who's, I get, I, I assume it's Jesse's dream, but. Well, th- that's an interesting thing too, is, is this is the first time that I've ever like literally now, like a couple days ago when I saw the film. So first time I even noticed that it was a dream sequence. Mm-hmm. I always thought it was a part of the text of the film. Like I thought it actually happened. Yeah. And, and then I, when I watched it now, I was like, oh, I was a little taken off guard because I was like, if this is a dream sequence, does it mean it didn't happen? Because for the rest of the movie, they seem to be a couple. Yeah. But I, who knows? Like, it's, it's hard to tell what exactly is a dream and what's not. Like, you get that the restaurant scene is a dream, but the rest of it. Who knows? Like, is I am the it, walrus? Does that actually happen, or is it a dream? Or you know, well, like. And then the other thing I didn't understand is that, to me, like it doesn't make sense if it's Jesse's dream because Ivor is the uh, blood vessel is the one who is like I love you, and then he turns around and then they go into the dream sequence. So he he's the one who's I yeah. mean, he's the the suitor. Yeah. So maybe right? so it's it his would, dream. It would be his fantasy. And then when Paul was talking about it, I was hoping that he would like elucidate a little bit. Yeah. Can you just be explicit once mm-hmm. in your life? Like, just say what. So he's like, it's a fantasy. 
but he doesn't say whose it is. Yeah. But I assume he means it's it's um, blood vessels because then he starts talking about his own fantasies as a kid, yeah. and it's his. It's Paul made it, so. Yeah. I think it's like his fantasy version of just like a romantic thing on a beach or whatever. Yeah. Anyways, um, I think it was cut because it's not poking fun of the. Like, it's uh, possible. It is quite possible. I mean, it's hard to tell. I, you know, it would be interesting to look back at um, the production records, and I'm sure they exist. I'm sure that you know, if somebody was. Uh, intrepid enough they could go into the BBC archives and find yeah but the BBC would never say either especially if it's something that they don't approve of there might be memos you'd you would be surprised to see what you can find in production uh archives like there may very well be some memos from one executive to the other saying listen we need to cut this it's uh you know and this is why you it's never repugnant know. because right, yeah. but again, I do think. I mean, it had to have had something to do with time because when you're looking at TV, it's got to fit into a time slot, and they're not going to cut two or three minutes of a film just for the hell of it. Like it probably came in over time, and they need to cut something. And here's a big chunk and that is weird, as the you know the BBC people said, and yeah, it doesn't feature the Beatles, and it features Aunt Jessie, which they might think is weird. Like I think there's a lot of reasons, but I I would be surprised if trying to fit into the time slot wasn't part of the reason that they cut that. Okay, like, I, I don't know. Is it weirder than like they're not going to cut flying? Like that's yeah literally. no I agree like, like flying definitely but nothing. that features but that features their features music, the music yeah that's which true. is on the soundtrack that. that they wanted but all to sell my, all, all my loving is in that but that. that's not I, on the I, I, but it's not on the I soundtrack yeah I guess so but yeah flying is yeah I agree like that would be an easy cut but it's new music. It's they on the soundtrack. They could have cut stripper, too. They, they could they have mind, cut that. Like that whole that. song at the end, they absolutely could have cut that. But, you know, it was sex. So I think I can see why they would keep that. But, yeah, I agree. They could have cut that. But also uh, John and George are in that scene. Well. Like that, bit, Aunt yeah. Jessie and Buster Blood Vessel on the beach is – you know, several minutes. Two and a half minutes with no Beatles. Two and a half I, I minutes with no Beatles, with no new music for, you know, the publisher to sell. No, you know, like, and and it is weird. Like, I think it's, it's delightful. I don't think it's weird at all. What's weird about it? Well, it's weird it's because, weird. I mean, we're just discussing, like, is it a dream? Did it really happen? I'm. That's what I mean. Like, you don't really know what's going on. Like, all of a sudden, there's this, this romance and you don't know if it's a dream whose dream is it so it's I mean narratively yeah, it's a little I, bit well confusing right. I guess I don't know I could see where the where the executives are coming yeah from. but if it was Paul and like if it was big tits then if, it would not be weird it, well, yeah it, if that was the exact same scene but it was Paul with you know what's her face the um Wendy Winters yeah <laughs> the, they would have left that in of course yeah. And they would have found two minutes to cut from something else. Well, that's a shame because I thought it was one of the best segments of the, oh, whole, I agree. the whole movie. I agree. I think it's really sweet. So then what? It was put back in. Because it's on the DVD, not as an outtake, but as 
or not as a deleted scene, but it's just right, right on the DVD. So the it was it like put back in when the movie was restored? Oh, you're asking questions I don't have the answers to. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is the Maisels all over again. Oh no, no. I mean, who knows? Maybe Paul was like, no, 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 you gotta put this back in. We didn't want to cut this. It's like the only thread in the whole fucking film is that romance, <laughs> right? It's true. And it is a very uh, flimsy thread, but it's there. Yeah, yeah and, it's true, true. And you're right that it does carry through, like that they kind of have that flirtation through the entire movie. Yeah, they're together, like they're together in John's dream sequence also. And they're at some point they're holding hands towards the end of the film. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I I feel like they became a, as the kids would say, they became a canon couple at the end. <laughs> In the outtakes, he does a song. Yeah, it that's a great song. It is a great that's song, a, right? Yeah, that's a really nice moment. Yeah. He must have I, been I, so sad that that was, like that and his exactly. beach romp were cut. So... Poor guy. Yeah, I'm going in a field to lie down. I liked it quite a bit. I think yeah, it's I got too. like de- definitely has like British Isles folk traditional, you know, vibes to it. Like sort mm-hmm. of Fairport convention kind yeah. of late sixties, which is something that I fucking love. Um, <laughs> so I'm I'm on board with that song. Yeah, Again, me too. I t- completely understand why it was cut. They had to get shit down to an hour, and like yeah. you said, any non-Beatles stuff was getting the right. Because if you look at the other deleted scenes, there's the one with the guy chasing the girls around the pool. Again, you know, there's no Beatles in that. Yeah, let's talk about that Nat Jackley deleted scene for mm-hmm. a moment. Uh, one of my big questions when I sat down to watch this DVD is like, what happened to the scene that John and or John and George? <laughs> allegedly um, directed because I've seen like behind the scenes footage or what like people's home movies that mm-hmm. they shot of the Beatles while they were filming. I've seen some footage of John in his white turtleneck on the cliffs, you know, and George in his big bulky jean jacket and whatnot. Uh-huh. So I know that they went and filmed a scene and then there was reference to it. In, I think, the making of documentary. Yeah, talking about how cold it was and those poor girls in their bikinis freezing. Yeah. Right. So I was like, well, that's that's fucked up. Why did that scene get cut? And then they, when I watched it in the deleted scenes, basically, um, I was like, well, I'm really glad they cut that. Yeah. <laughs> because it was, it was gross. Yeah. That was weird. And not in a good yeah. way. Yeah. I. <laughs> it was, yeah. yeah, it was just kind of like a Benny Hill moment. It was just yeah. like, eh. But, you know, we're looking at it through, in a very different context. And so, you know. The, That's true, too. It, I guarantee that that was not cut because it was sexist. <laughs> like, oh, no I can way. tell you 100% <laughs> that that had nothing to do with it. Oh, God, no. no, um, no. So, yeah. I It well, does nothing for me. I, but again, like. You know, I don't know anything about that comedian. Um, he seemed like a p- good physical comedian. Like, I think he's, he, yeah, yeah. he was commendable. He did a good job. And um, I can see why that scene would be funny. But I'm all for sexy girls in bikinis. Like, I, I'm pro that. <laughs> sure. I'm pro looking at, like, hot chicks. But 
Um, I hate when there's a creepy old guy mm. and a bunch of hot chicks. Like that is one of my number one. Yeah. Like, squicks. I hate it so much. Yeah. This is exactly that. It's an old pervy guy walking funny. Like it's gross. But everything from that time period had that, you know, like, again, I know we've talked a lot about sort of the laugh in Monty Python, <laughs> Benny Hill, but they're all sort of predicated on hot young girls in bikinis yeah, and true. weird, creepy guys ogling them. Like that's oh, all gross. that happens in those shows. So <laughs> it's true. That, Cause you yeah. know who it's for. Yes. Well, you know who made it because it's well, not that too. That like, too. you know, I don't think they cared about anybody in the audience other than the, no. you know, straight dudes who were, Horny at home. Yeah, like the people making it were making it for themselves. Themselves. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, well, we want to see it. So, and we don't care if the guys are hot or not. Right. Exactly. No one's looking at the men. Right. I want to see girls in bikinis. And men want to see themselves up there on the screen. Exactly. They don't want and we don't want to... they can't live up to. How's that fun for we anyone? We don't want men to feel inferior by putting, exactly. you know, some stud. Sexy young thing up no. there. I mean, come on now. It's just, we're not trying to make people feel bad about themselves. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's exactly it. So I <laughs> totally get the context in which that scene was conceived and shot. And again... Just like the other scenes that they cut, it didn't have the Beatles in it. And I okay. think they needed to fit it into the time slot, and those were easy cuts to make. Can I just tell you, the the thing that I hated most about that scene, even though we've already, like, torn it to shreds, <laughs> I'm sorry. A scene but, that's not even in the movie. <laughs> it's not even in there. Oh, my God. Poor, poor Nat Jackley, bless his soul. If he's not of the earth anymore, I'm assuming he's not because yeah. he's like fucking 60 years old <laughs> when the Beatles are 25. So I'm assuming yeah. he's he's passed on. God bless you wherever you are, sir. But um, <laughs> the thing I hated so much about that scene, too, was all the people just standing around watching it that yeah. are in the scene. You can't do that. Clear the scene, John. Yeah. I mean, I assume they were just kind of looky-loos, like just people. Yeah, because they, I thought the, so too. The making of documentary talks about how the press and how all these people were like, you know, hunting them down and trying to watch the Beatles filming. But then, yeah, clear the scene. I wonder, I, I don't know. I don't even have any speculation <laughs> about why they left them in, but it is weird. It's, it ruined it. It completely ruined it. It takes you out of, of, you know, this sort of imaginary world that they've created of the Magical Mystery Tour, and it makes it into, oh, I'm watching this movie being filmed, and all of these people are standing around watching this movie being filmed. Yeah. It stops being sort of this immersive, like, I, oh, this is these are real people on a Magical Mystery Tour, and right, instead right, exactly. it's, oh, this is the Beatles making a movie. Yes. And here's a scene. And it wasn't in a deliberate way, like oh, we're like breaking in the fourth weekend movie. where there are constant references to being in a film, you, exactly, but that's very exactly. deliberate. Yeah. Exactly. So that was bad. And and I think um based on the quote from John Lennon in 1980, he says I just wrote dreams that I'd had down and tried to recreate them. That one bit, the only bit I like that I contributed is the dream sequence where they're eating 
And based on that, him saying the only bit that I like that I contributed, I think he's saying he didn't like the Nat Jackley one. So I'm assuming that's why it got cut. Yeah, maybe. He he wasn't happy with how it yeah. came out. And they just sort of agreed like, yeah, well, let's just leave that one out then. Yeah, possibly. It doesn't add but, anything. Yeah, which is sad. But he did but he did get that dream sequence, which is amazing. Yeah, it is. It's very bizarre and you have to wonder like what John had for dinner that night before he had that dream cuz it's oh, so weird. It's, well, you know, when I saw it, I was like, wow, somebody's got food issues. And then I found out that it was John's actual dream and I'm like, oh, of course. Well, that tracks. <laughs> we know he's like He's got anorexia and mm. various food issues and yeah. body issues and poor John. He had poor like John. a lot of yeah. phobias and neuroses and stuff. Um, yeah, but That's, so that was his. That was an actual dream of his where he's the one shoveling food. Oh, he's getting yeah. the food in his dream. Like people are just yeah. shoveling spaghetti. I thought that scene was delightful. I, the, I mean, the one thing that kind of bothered me was that was the moment where it did seem like let's make fun of the bigger woman uh by shoveling all this food but uh apart from you know that little sort of twinge of of ickiness uh you know i love the people coming in and walking over the tables i thought that was really yeah i like that too and like there's this uh one table where everybody's just sitting in their underwear and they're like there's just weirdness that's really sort of anarchic and silly and fun in and again like in a Marx Brothers way. And it's, I wonder if John was a Marx Brothers fan. Well, I think he did try to recreate the feeling of a dream where, yeah, yeah things are going on that don't really make narrative sense. Yeah, were, for sure. You know, for sure. Thing. We don't know why one table's naked and whatever. Yeah. I, one thing that I, that struck me about that sequence is that it's so similar to the scene from uh, Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. With the the big guy that goes into a restaurant and they just keep bringing him more and more food. That kind of reminded me and it made me think like, you know that Monty Python was a fan of this film. And so I I have to think that that scene informed uh, that later scene in The Meaning of Life. Definitely. definitely. Yeah, there's no doubt. It just seems far too similar to be a coincidence. Yeah. It reminded me of, um, I don't even know if this is the right movie, did did you see the cook the thief the wife and her lover? Right, or no, like that. I haven't cook, seen that. His wife and her lover, or something the cook like that. The thief, his wife and her lover. Wife I think. Yeah, yeah uh-huh. it's like a late ninety, late eighties, early nineties, something like that. I don't know. I film, haven't seen something, it. Something like that. I have a very vague memory of seeing that when I was young, and it reminds me vaguely of that. There's like a lot of restaurants, unless I'm thinking of a completely different movie which i might be mm-hmm. and there's like the to, from room to room and there's different colors huh. in the rooms that's that's what it sort of invoked for me mm-hmm. which obviously that that movie comes a lot longer and i'm not saying that they it was inspired by magical mystery right Fire. right right that's what it brought to mind for me but just to stay on that for a second though on the dream sequence i did think john was super delightful in it yes um He's yeah, had, like he, he has so much fun. It's fun to watch him um, really. Ham it up. Ham, yeah, he gets into all <laughs> these different roles in a way that's really, really fun. I agree. I think he's just he's just captivating on screen. Mm-hmm. You know what's yeah. funny to me, and again, I'm 
like I'm a Beatles fan, but I'm not like a Beatles psycho fanatic. <laughs> yeah, like well, no, I just yeah, I I haven't like done the work of you know reading the books and you know all this reading, watching all the interviews and anyway. Um, which means that I'm sort of more susceptible to buying into the mainstream narratives that have been perpetuated about all of the different Beatles. Like I haven't really interrogated that and thought, wait, is John really the the edgy one? And is Ringo really the goofy <laughs> one? Like, you know, you just yeah, kind of, yeah. that's what you like well, here. <laughs> and so you kind of buy into it. And as you know, I hadn't seen any of these movies uh, ever until now. Um, so it's weird how John is always sort of figured as more serious, like he's more oh, yeah. about protesting and he just feels so deeply about peace and about, uh, <laughs> you know, the environment and about love. And it's all about like you picture John and you think about the the bed in and give peace a chance and, and imagine and all this kind of stuff. And that is so much the image that Mm. I've like come to accept that when I see him like with his hair slicked back in a waiter's outfit, shoveling spaghetti and enjoying (laughs) it and having a great time. It's like, it really kind of makes me have to rethink everything that I, thought was accurate, but clearly was just, you know, some weird narrative about all of the Beatles, you know, like, oh, wait a minute, Ringo is the best actor? Oh, that's interesting. Or, you know, like, John was a goofball? Yeah. I don't know, all of this, it just really kind of makes me rethink everything. John's John's a super goofball and a complete ham, a complete ham. Here's the thing that's Okay, so John did go through a super pretentious, self-important period from like maybe like late 1968 through, uh-huh. let's say, like 72 maybe. But like it really was just like a four-year stretch at most, right? Right. Where he was just super serious all the time and, you know, took himself way too seriously and mm-hmm. was, you know, whatever. Yeah. But um, his estate has really – really zeroed in on that four-year period yeah. as being his entire image. Yeah. So I feel like nowadays that's the only John that they really show you. Is yeah. Like, you know, yeah. 69 through 72, really. Yeah. If we're, it's, it's, it's really 69 through 71, if we're being really, really specific to put a fine point on it. Those are the, th- the only three years that we're allowed to represent John Lennon, you know? Yeah. When in actuality, it's not the John Lennon that the world fell in love with. It's like that was pre-68 John Lennon, like the funny – you know, goofy, irreverent, like sassy, you know what I mean? Like definitely like a smart Alec, occasionally slightly edgy, but he was still cool and you wanted to be his friend and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, And also during that self-important era, you know, he (laughs) really leaned into the, (laughs) he really did lean into this whole, like, I'm not an entertainer. I'm an artist. I'm here to bleed and show you my story guts and all that kind of stuff which again that's terrific we love that too but the idea that john is not a performer is Mm -hmm. absolute madness like it's it's just ridiculous he is absolutely a performer yeah he and he lives you know he thrives with like positive attention 
And it's not like, oh, all right, I guess I'll just do this thing because I have to. No, he loved it. He was having he a great time. And yeah, I don't know why. I agree with you. Like that's the image of him that gets put forward and, uh, you know, by his estate, by whatever. Um, and I don't know why they don't broaden that because him being a goofball is so much more endearing than him being a serious artist who cares deeply about the world's problems. <laughs> yeah. You know, like that's great too. And I'm not saying they shouldn't yeah, you can be foreground both. that, but you can be both. And John, like we saw him in, you know, in the Males' documentary where he's just so young and, and sweet and goofy and like – and like we see him in a hard day's night playing with a, you know, a battleship in the bathtub. And like we see him in Magical Mystery Tour. That is so endearing. And I, yeah, it's so at odds with this predominant image of John that, um, that everybody really buys into. Well, he really comes alive when there's a camera pointed at him. I mean, that's just true. It's just the way that it is. And I think over time, he sort of bought into this philosophy that like, if you're a performer, that means you're fake, mm -hmm. which sorry, John, I hate to tell you that you are a performer and like, he likes to entertain people, you know? Yeah. And also I don't think that that means that you're fake. It's just a personality type. Like some people are just performers. Teachers are performers, mm -hmm. you know, public yeah. speakers are performers. Politicians are performers. Sure. A lot of people, people who do fucking podcasts and lectures <laughs> and you know, whatever it's right. like, Lots of people are performers. It doesn't make them fake. It's just some people are have that outgoing or extroverted, you know, characteristic or whatever. And a lot of people describe John as a human being, as a person. Describe him as like in private, he was actually very sensitive. He was, you know, very thoughtful, quiet sometimes, and he could be moody and all these sorts of things. But I think definitely he has a performer's personality and when he has a microphone or a stage or a camera, he turns it on and he becomes whatever he wants to be or whatever you want him to be yeah. at that time, you know? And there's a part in the movie, there's that adorable scene in the movie where he's playing with uh, Nicola, the little girl, Ugh. who was somebody's child on the bus. Yeah. And... Paul, in the commentary, he's like, this is a lovely scene. Um, we see John playing with this little girl and having a good time. And it's not something that, that we ever got to see on film. And it's not something that I really ever got to see much. So hmm. um, it's really nice that we have this film of it. And it made me think, like Paul, Paul was saying, like, he's very comfortable with her on film and they've got this rapport going and they're having a fun time and she's enjoying him. Yeah. Right. Paul's point was like, he wasn't really naturally like that with kids, but I think a camera being on him helped because he's performing suddenly. Oh, he's that's more interesting. Comfortable with her. Yeah. Because in real life, um, he didn't really know how to play with his own kid, you know? I mean, oh, if you wow. look at the, the behind-the-scenes photos from Magical Mystery Tour, Paul's always with Julian. Like, Paul's playing with, you know, huh. he's wrestling with Julian. He's playing with him on the beach and stuff like that. John is not. That's interesting. See, and I 
would have thought the opposite because I love that that scene, that moment with John and the little girl, and I thought it must have been very natural. I and it and that was another one that really sort of made me rethink because you know the other thing you hear about John, other than being right. the um, the serious artist, is that he's sort of the the you know acidic wit, like he's the. Um, you know, kind of snarky one or something. You don't, you don't get a sense for him being warm and loving, but maybe he wasn't. I don't know that, that watching him with that little girl, I was like, Oh, okay. You never hear about what, you know, a, this tender, loving uh, father he is, but I don't don't I don't think it's that he wasn't tender or loving or, or, even interested in his child. I think he just wasn't a comfortable dad. You know, I just think maybe he, he just didn't, you know how some people are just awkward with kids, you know? Yeah. Like he, he was just awkward with kids, you know, like what, as opposed to Paul, who's a natural with kids Mm -hmm. and, and enjoy and likes it. Like some people just like kids. Yeah. And have no problem playing with them. And it's like, there's a story that Paul tells about how, when they were on vacation one time, he was playing, Paul was playing with Julian, like whatever, he'd take him down to the beach and they'd go swimming or, and he was playing pirates with him or something mm-hmm. like that. And John asked him like, how do you do that? How, how do you just play pirates? Yeah. And Paul's just like, I, I, you just play pirates. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I don't, I don't know how to explain it. Yeah. And huh. some people can't do that. Like you, you yeah, met that's adults like that who cannot, they're just like, Hello, how are you? Yeah, you know, like, do yeah. you like cookies? Like, they don't know how to the kids. <laughs> yeah, but I think that you know, again, to the point. Like, I think having a camera on him was actually beneficial to John in that because he it, he does know how to perform, mm-hmm. and he was comfortable, and the little girl was comfortable. Like, she thought he was funny because he's funny. Yeah. It's such a sweet, it is such a sweet little scene. I I mean, George looks kind of uncomfortable, but but, uh, John and the little girl are just having a great time and it's just a delightful moment. (laughs) George looks so, he looks like the cameraman came over and George got up and the camera was like, no, no, stay there. And he's like, oh, (laughs) it's like, God God. damn it. God I have to be in this it. fucking scene. And now. then John like gets George involved. He like hands him the d- the balloon. <laughs> yeah. He's like George, 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 George. <laughs> George is like, oh, Jesus, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, like, I don't like kids either. Yeah, that's really what it comes across. <laughs> he was like, I don't like kids. I'm not sure I like you right now. I <laughs> yeah, I would very right. much like to get off this bus. <laughs> Maybe feeling a little car sick. I don't know. <laughs> If there are any big ideas in Magical Mystery Tour, which I sort of don't think there are, but like if there are, this would be kind of the only one that, you know, is really plausible to me. The wizards are, in fact, responsible for the Magical Mystery Tour. Mm -hmm. They sort of strike me as, you know, they're gods, right? Right throughout time that's you know pretty much our our basic concept of a god right they live in the sky and control stuff it's a fun 
idea. I mean, I think in anybody else's hands, it would come off as terribly narcissistic and Mm -hmm. gross, probably. Sure. (laughs) But it comes off sweet. 1967 is basically the peak of their powers. Right. And they're using it for good, you know. This is all you need is love era. They're talking to the world about, like, being kind and loving each other and meditation and, you know, equality and stuff. All the good values that we love them for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and that these wizards are just sort of fun and playful and goofy and, like, that's um, – it's not some sort of malevolent god <laughs> meeting out justice and you know absolutely and they're not even mischievous like it would be typical for them to be setting obstacles Mm -hmm. you know like in a normal movie that's what they would be doing right right they'd be setting obstacles for the heroes and watching them go through and these are very just like hands-off wizards they're not really if they're controlling stuff they're not you don't really see them intervening and yeah or like doing anything they're kind of just watching this is out of left field and I am sh- – it's probably not a reference because it's so out of left field. But it reminded me of a lot of old silent films by Georges Méliès where there's always wizards wearing the full robes and they always have these big tall hats uh, and they're often uh, writing on chalkboards. And so um, <laughs> the production design kind of remind me reminded me of old school Méliès silent films. Certainly that's not the only other um, – visual reference to wizards wearing long robes and pointy hats. And so I'm sure there's a lot of other references and they probably got that from somewhere else, but that's definitely what it reminded me of. And then they're always playful in the Melies films. Yeah. They have a little bit of like a Merlin quality, although mm-hmm. it's interesting. They're all, they're still young. Like they're not in beards and yeah, you know, walking around with staffs and shit. They're like cute, campy little, babes yeah you know with like with like cherry noses and you know rosy cheeks and shit so they're kind of weird like they're kind of themselves basically right Um, yeah they're adorable and i but they're doing weird voices which cracks me up and i don't know what they're doing but john well as we already mentioned john is definitely doing some kind of a groucho thing they all look i was half an hour looking for the sugar (laughs) I don't know what their what their motivation was in this scene other than to just sort of be wacky, but um, yeah, they're definitely trying to just have fun, I guess. And just I think they refer to them as like the campy wizards. Mm. They're not overly campy. They're just kind of silly. Yeah. Like, I don't think that the Magical Mystery Tour was conceived of like let's tell a story about how wizards are controlling our lives (laughs) no 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 they were just kind of an excuse for them to be silly and dance around with goofy hats on and wave sticks in the air and stuff yeah but again that they are sort of self-contained hands-off in terms of what's going on down below make them seem more like nature okay like nature gods or something you know like <laughs> no, who's the dude that's uh standing in the background who doesn't say anything that's mel mal evans 
Well, he's also, um, did you notice in the Blue Jay Way segment, going back to Kenneth Anger, mm-hmm. there's a section at the end where they're projecting, where Mal has his shirt off and they're projecting onto him. Oh, is that him too? That's him. Oh, that's funny. M- magical, mystical boy. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell was that? I think Blue Jay Way, which is a song that I really like, but that number I felt like was just from a different movie. Um, I Everything yeah. is so light. Like even Fool on the Hill, which is like, it's a pretty sort of meditative yeah. song. I don't know. Like it's a kind of a deep song. Um, I, I love the little expressions that Paul has on his face during that song. But um <laughs> Yeah, like all of the other songs are fairly sort of light. And then Blue Jay Way is this weird, trippy, like smoke everywhere and George. And then all the Beatles come in and it's like, oh, okay, so they are in this movie. Like it just seemed like it was a very um, uh, tonally uh, very different from the rest of the film until the rest of the band makes their entrance. And then, okay, now we're back in Magical Mystery Tour. And there was a little clip in the outtakes, like the alternate take of Blue Jay Way or whatever, um, at the end where the bus pulls up behind George and he, he gets up abruptly and climbs back <laughs> into the bus. And I kind of thought, like, maybe they should have put that at the end just to sort of tie it back in. Yeah. Like, oh, right. He's on a he's because then it's more like this is his experience on the bus. And also maybe he's taking a moment out to meditate. Yeah. You know, like he's just doing his own thing on the bus break, which is actually what he was doing during the filming. Like, cause there's a, a famous picture of him sitting in one of the fields meditating. Oh, nice. <laughs> in his big David Byrne suit. Um, <laughs> so they, like if they had put a little more thought and a little more purpose into it they could have kind of communicated that that yeah and made the scene more about that you know again i think they just needed someone maybe with a little bit more experience to sort of to help them complete those ideas yeah you know sort of finish them off a little bit yeah for Um, sure i was kind of expecting blue jay way to be a little bit of a boring sequence because i didn't remember a lot happening in it but I actually thought it was really good. Like, I really yeah, it's really cool. But it's very burst. just kind of, I don't want to say serious, but it's just heavier than the other musical numbers. Uh, obviously heavier than I Am the Walrus or Your Mother Should Know, but also just like deeper or so. I don't know what the right word is that I'm looking for. Well, it's, it's definitely totally different. Yeah. It's, a, you know, it has that drone quality mm-hmm. to it. If you're making like a stoner film, it's a nice moment too because it kind of brings the <laughs> madness down for a little bit, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> like this, kind, just, kind of shifting. You just sort of shift gears down. George himself was kind of tonally different too. Like as far as his performance in the film, I didn't feel like he ever had a moment to shine. Whereas everybody else has kind of a moment to shine, and I know Blue Jay Way is his moment, I guess, but. He just he wasn't shining. <laughs> he, was, he wasn't shining. He was like vibrating a little bit, but he wasn't shining. He was like he just seemed very kind of introspective. But like Paul was definitely giving it his all for the entire movie. Yeah. And Ringo too. And John was having like just 
goofing and having a great time. Like you could tell the three of them were just having a blast. And I'm George probably was too, but it wasn't reading that way. And it, I didn't get the sense that he was like angry or didn't want to be there. He just he he felt a little he's awkward sh- to me. He, he seems checked out. He definitely Yeah, seems he does out. kind of. Yeah, he doesn't really speak. He doesn't. Movie. He's like deeply into meditation at that point. Uh-huh. I think he's just getting bored with being in a band. Yeah. Whereas, Although I did love his outfit, and I loved all of his outfits. Yeah, um, and especially in Blue Jay Way, he looked yeah, great. In he Blue did. Jay he did. Do you want to talk about I Am the Walrus a little bit? Yeah, I Am the Walrus is um, horrifying and also fun at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those Eggmen. Oh my god. They're weird. What I don't very weird. And I don't I like get, anything about them. <laughs> yeah. And I get it's not supposed to make a lot of sense, but yeah, it's definitely just like this is crazy, man. This is absolutely crazy. But it's also a lot of fun in a, just a weird trippy way. Yeah, I thought it was beautiful. It's a beautiful segment. Yeah. Um it's a terrific song. I like I liked that the video for I am the Walrus got progressively weirder and weirder. <laughs> like, it started out somewhat normal. You're like, yeah. oh, be- oh, good, a song. And then it's like, wait, what? I'm s- there. There's policemen holding hands and, oh, no, what's happening? And yeah. I'm like, it's, I think it's interesting that that's what they chose for the cover of the album. <laughs> yeah, now that I think about it, when you look at that album cover, it is kind of like, what the fuck? Because... Those animal heads don't really have anything to do with the tour. Like, we're not going to the zoo. Right. Yeah, and they don't have anything to do with the song other than the walrus. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true, too. Do you like I Am the Walrus? Yeah. The different sections are interesting. Like, it's melodically interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, it is one of those songs that where sort of the production kind of overwhelms the song itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say kind of because although it's not a song that, for instance, gets covered much, like you don't see people on, you know, voice competitions singing it or anything. Um, yeah. the, the, part of the great <laughs> Lennon McCartney songbook. Yeah, song. that's true. Um, but which isn't to say that's not to dog on the melody or whatever. Cause sure. it, like you said, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but the lyrics get more attention than pretty much anything. The lyrics are fun to sing. Uh-huh. So they have that quality. You know, there's some, there's some songs that are just really fun to sing. Yeah. Uh, regardless of like sort of the content of the lyrics, yeah, they're just fun. Like they're alliterative or or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I am the walrus is one of those. Like it's a fun. It's kind of like um, you know Bob Dylan's Subterranean Homesick Blues. The lyrics aren't really that good, you know? sure, <laughs> but but they're but they're fun and creative and evocative in a kind of nonsense poetry sort of way. <laughs> It was interesting when we were talking about Blue Jay Way earlier, and you said that Blue Jay Way is a lot darker than I am the walrus, mm-hmm. which I kind of agree with you. Mm-hmm. Um, even though, like, for instance, the subject matter of Blue Jay Way is 
nothing. It's like I'm literally just sitting here waiting and my I'm getting tired and my friends are late. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and whereas I am the walrus is like custard dripping from a dead dog's eye and right, like right. choking smokers and you know I saw the song described as very angry. I am the walrus? I get maybe. <laughs> I don't get anger from it yeah. personally. Maybe I get maybe a little snark or you know uh-huh. like some you know frustration or something. Anger isn't really a word I would I personally use to describe it. Uh, mm-hmm. That's not what I get out of it. So there's a part towards the end of the movie, the bus stops, and then the guys go off with Jolly Jimmy to the strip club. Yeah. And I wanted to know where the women went. I know. The women got to follow. Wendy, like, where did they go? Yes, I absolutely felt the same way. I was like, okay, now we're seeing the guys at the strip club, and then we're going to cut to the women and see what they're doing, see what Aunt Jessie is doing. None of that. It was just (laughs) follow the boys into the strip club. And the end. I want that scene of I do what, what uh, the women were doing with all the guys. Yeah. I hope they all like did shrooms and went to a club <laughs> and like. Well, I mean, if the something. Beatles were writing this, then they didn't. They probably didn't even think about They're what like, the women what? were doing. They're like, what we got to have oh. a strip club. So <laughs> let's yeah. just get rid of the women. <laughs> they were waiting on the bus for us to come back. Yeah, they were uh, knitting or something. I don't know. They were talking about us. In the in the commentary, it's very cute. Paul, Paul talks about the Beatles backing a stripper in Hamburg. Like they were the band. Mm-hmm. So he says like that was basically their job for a while. This one stripper named Jeanette because of course he remembers her name of course um she came and she brought her sheet music to them and they were they like can't read music so they were like um they played her like some rock and roll music that was not appropriate she was not impressed at all (laughs) (laughs) yeah like that section did feel a little indulgent it did feel a little like you know four 20 something dudes saying Let's put a stripper in here, you know, like, let's go to a strip club. (laughs) So fine, whatever. Um, But I mean, I I think it's, I think it's kind of cute. A, because it's like literally part of their background as a band. Yeah. Like I do, I do feel like it's kind of like a throwback to their early days. Um, And then also like if they are doing a working class tour of the common people or whatever, you know, like I feel like that is sort of a natural place to end up. I, in my experience, I sure. think that, that it's just like part of a normal. Like, yeah, I guess. Strip club. I felt like it went on really long, that scene. And you've got this band who's not the Beatles singing Death Cab, Death for, Cab Cutie, for Cutie randomly. I didn't realize that was a song. Um, mm. Doing like a weird Elvis impersonation. And I mean, the band was. <laughs> the band was fine, but it just seemed like a very long time yeah you know random band plus stripper plus mr blood vessel in the audience creepily polishing seriously polishing his glasses that was creepy (laughs) and uh john you know kind of smiling in the audience and i i don't it was such a weird scene what is happening here and i mean you ask that throughout the movie but this is the one time you're like what were they thinking like why did they put this scene in here i don't know i i it, i didn't get that scene 
I was very happy when the Beatles showed up and started singing. <laughs> Knowing the Beatles well, it doesn't feel out of place. And then also, it seemed extremely mild to me. Oh, you for know? sure. For sure. Like, I wasn't offended or anything. I just kind of felt like, like, all like right. Like, it's kind of par for the course, I guess. But it also felt like there was no point to it. Like, it, there was definitely no point to it. Like, I feel like it would have been a lot cooler if this was going on in the background while something else was actually happening. Yes. Like, if, if their characters had cut through the strip club... And it was just happening, like, and you cut away to a stripper, that would be more fun than just, we're actually just watching somebody do their strip We're just watching a random band. We're just watching a stripper. Like, there's not... Yeah. There's nothing to it. It's not... There's not more. (laughs) It's just like, and here's a stripper. And here's a random band singing a song. Exactly. Here are some random friends that we have that are going to entertain you that's yeah i thought that's what the purpose of it was is to just put on like various forms of entertainment and that was one that they were like well how about a stripper that's entertaining like great idea paul you know (laughs) (laughs) i think that's kind of as far as it went the strippers just sort of lumped in with the rest of the entertainment Uh um and like again to bring back weekend you know it's like weekend very indulgently opens with like a fucking 10 minute oh segment my God. of like penthouse forum letters that yeah. this woman is basically reading. Um, yeah. It gets pretty explicit and long and uh, just goes on and mm-hmm, on and mm-hmm. on and on. So it's not as if there wasn't tons of this on oh, in movies and everything nowadays. Absolutely. And I, you know, and it all had to do with sort of the loosening of in American film anyway, the loosening of the production code. And so now you can start to show nudity um, in the sixties. And, you know, if you think about like strippers kind of get reevaluated. You've got Gypsy, you know, coming out in the late 50s, yeah. the stage play, and then there's a movie adaptation in the early 60s. So strippers start to get reevaluated. And then just like porno begins to be more mainstream. You yeah. have movies like Deep Throat, which, you know, sort of nice middle class couples used to go to yeah. on a date. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. Like, so. You do have kind of this this idea of like sex is natural. Let's watch strippers, but of course, it's always this yeah, yeah. sort of heteronormative male view of sexuality. It's yeah, never, yeah, you know. Totally. But uh, so you know, well, again, it's, it's not. It could have so easily been like if we had cut away to Wendy and the gals seeing like the thunder from down under or something or what or anything like any whatever the equivalent of that would have been yeah it would have been awesome yeah exactly it's so it's forgotten yeah which again like everything else in this movie is very typical of late 60s (laughs) you know just sort of objectifying women let's put them up there in a bikini or have them take off their clothes or whatever um and that's what the audience wants to see, right? I, I would be, I would love to know whether people reacted to that scene specifically. Either, you know, the the grandparents watching saying, oh, there's a stripper on the BBC. Or the younger people watching saying, why are we watching this band? I tuned in to watch the Beatles. Like, I'm, I'm, I wonder yeah, right, right, yeah. the range of complaints about this scene in particular. Well, so the band was Friends of Paul's. So I think it was half- to promote them. Were they famous in their own right? They were successful on a small scale. 
Okay. Right. So they were like a like more of a, you know, more like an indie band or whatever. Okay. But they were friends of Paul's, and they were a band that he produced on Apple once they got Apple going and, and stuff like that. So he was. I definitely think he was trying to promote them. Sure. Which is very generous if you think about it. I mean, that's the the whole spirit of the thing. Mm-hmm. And Ivor Cutler is a guy that Paul. As he said, he knew through the London scene and whatever, and, yeah. and he liked him. And Victor Spinetti, too, is a friend yeah. of theirs at that point. So it's like they're getting their friends That's, in their movie. Yeah. It's nice. <laughs> it is nice. It really is. And um, there was also that tr- that scene with Traffic that got cut out. They're an amazing band. I love every album that they put out mm-hmm. in their short run. <laughs> but um, their segment that they filmed was pleasant, but again, it wasn't. It was boring, you know, like like some of the lesser scenes in Magical Mystery Tour. They're nice, but they're kind of boring. Like there's not really a lot going on in them. Yeah, you know? that whole scene, the strip club, I, you know, whatever. I, you know, I would, I didn't hate it, but I was definitely, yeah, it did, it, it didn't hold my interest, charm you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when the Beatles, you know, come down the staircase in their white tuxedos, then it's like, okay, yes, now the movie has. You know, now we're back to the movie. Apparently, Your Mother Should Know was inspired by a line from the 1960 film A Taste of Honey. That film is also notable for inspiring a few Morrissey and Smith songs. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> a taste of honey for anyone who hasn't seen it is a what they called a kitchen sink film. Mm-hmm. Realistic. This is my. Um, I'm reading from Wikipedia. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a kitchen sink film. It's a post-war British style characterized by realistic depictions of drab or sordid subjects that used uh, working-class domestic settings. So uh, this particular movie, which is extremely charming, and I very much recommend it. Um, there's a teen pregnancy, an interracial romance, an absent father, an alcoholic mom, and then like a gay friend who becomes like the roommate to the pregnant teen girl. And your mother should know is one of the lines that that uh, that came from it and, and allegedly inspired the song, which is another great callback to another film that probably inspired him in some way. Huh. I'm going to have a baby. Yes, I thought so. You're in a bit of a mess, aren't you? Oh, I don't care. You can get rid of babies before they're born, you know. Yes, I know, but I think that's terrible. When's it due? About November. Your mother should know. Why? Like, I really like Your Mother Should Know. I like it when Paul mm-hmm. gets old-timey with his music. Yeah. I, I just think it's like Honey Pie or, you know, Obladi Oblada. I think it's really sweet and fun. Anyway, so I really like Your Mother Should Know just as a song. And I do, too. I thought that the 
dance number and the, the four of them and their white tuxedos coming down the stairs and everything. Like, I just thought that whole number was just delightful. Me too. Yeah. Oh, that was the best for me. Yeah. I, like, I was so excited when it came on at the end. I was like, I'm so glad you guys ended with this big production. Yeah. Like, yeah. And John and Paul are having so much fun. So much <laughs> so, fun. So stupid. Like, yes. They're like completely in sync the whole time. Yeah. They look like they would be waltzing into their old age in matching suits together up the like the staircase yeah. and shit. They're so ridiculous. Yeah. I agreed with that completely. I and you know, they're definitely the best dancers too. Like Paul and John, and it's probably just because they were the ones who were the most into it. George definitely felt kind of awkward in that number. <laughs> yeah. Just kind of like, all right, I'm doing it because this is what we're doing, but all right. Well, you know what's what's weird is that I mean, maybe it's because Ringo was stuck on the end mm-hmm. after George. <laughs> Sorry, George. But you weren't into the number, and you would admit it. You weren't into the dance number. Mm-hmm. Um, because Paul and John are hams, as we've discussed, and yeah. so is Ringo. I mean, Ringo's a huge ham, oh, too. He might be the biggest God. ham in the whole group. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of weird that he wasn't more into the dance number. But again, I think he was – because John and Paul had, were sort of always sliding off as like the gene – Kelly Fred Astaire combo or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> he kept getting like over in the corner with George, who's like, ugh. <laughs> Maybe that took some of the uh, wind out of Ringo's sails. I gotta have George as my dance partner again. <laughs> Why can't I dance with John? Oh, <laughs> poor Ringo. Yeah, I thought that whole. That the production design there with and the, their costumes and everything, I just thought it was really cute. I had no idea what the women in uniform walking by was supposed to mean in the middle yeah, of that number. Yeah, they were number. so cute. Yeah. I think Paul just likes them. Lovely Rita. She she has a bag across her shoulder and it makes her look a little like a military man. Huh. <laughs> I think he just likes that look. A mate? Yeah, I guess maybe maybe at home yeah. he like had Linda dress up <laughs> in a like, little uniform. Put Dr- on that military Dr- uniform. And <laughs> dress like a, me- dress like a meter maid. <laughs> <laughs> when it was finished, what did you think when you saw it? Oh, I loved it, you know, because it was a trip. So everybody was down on it. It was, it's all right. But there's too much, nothing happened. But there's some nice moments of dream sequence. The mother should know it's a dream sequence. Coming down with all those silly suits on. All right, then. Thank you for coming <laughs> to my Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> your bouquet's in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> outstanding. And your black carnation. Yeah, outstanding. I'm already wearing the white tux, so I'm <laughs> I assume Excellent. that you are wearing your walrus costume. <laughs> yeah, that's what I record every episode in. <laughs> no, that makes sense. <laughs> Next episode will be in my pasties. No, uh, not even pasties, right? Oh, no, she did. No. No, she took she off had, the top. She went. She had a top. She just took off. Full mom. Fuck the pasties. Yeah. <laughs> Past that, I'm going fully topless in the next episode. Heck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have a, a good backing band. There you go. <laughs> you could get Death Cab for Cutie. Yeah, that's true. I could you get, get the band. band. I said, that's true. Like, yeah, that's easy. I'm on the phone with them all the time. I'll shoot them an email. 
We hope you all enjoyed this episode of Another Kind of Mind. Check out the show notes for links to articles, videos, and a list of films mentioned in this podcast. Most of them are currently available on major streaming platforms, including Weekend and Daisies, which I have now seen and can confirm it's quite a delight. If you enjoy Another Kind of Mind, we'd really appreciate a positive rating and or review on our iTunes page, as it can help more listeners find us. Thanks again to everyone for your feedback and continued support.